0: Nadina, the Russian dancer who had taken Paris by storm, swayed to the sound of the applause and bowed. The long line of her scarlet mouth curved faintly upwards. Enthusiastic Frenchmen continued to beat the ground appreciatively as the curtain fell. In a swirl of blue and orange draperies, she left the stage. In her dressing room, Bouquets were heaped carelessly everywhere. Marvelous costumes hung on pegs, and the air was hot and sweet with the scent of the blossoms and perfumes.
1: Who is it?
0: Count
2: Sergius Polovich.
0: Madame Nadina smiled and slipped out of her costume into an exquisite wisp of chiffon and ermine. She sat smiling to herself whilst one long white hand beat a slow tattoo on the glass of the dressing table.
3: Inter.
0: Madame, this is a pleasure indeed. The Count was a man of medium height, slim build, very elegant and very pale a man difficult to recognize again if one left his mannerisms out of account. He bowed over her hand with exaggerated courtliness.
3: Close the door.
0: Alone with her visitor, a subtle change came over Nadina's
3: smile. They will not... Speaker Russian, I think.
2: Since neither of us know a word of the language, it might be as
0: well. The Count's mannerisms dropped from him. There was no doubt that English was his native language. After all, he had started life as an actor in London. You had great success
2: tonight. I congratulate you.
3: My fame is not what it was. I'm continually watched and spied upon. The suspicions aroused during the war have never died down.
2: But no charge of espionage was ever brought against you.
3: Our leader his plans too carefully for that.
2: Long life to the colonel. Amazing news, is it not, that he means to retire? (laughs) To retire! Just like a doctor or a butcher.
3: Or any other businessman. That is what the colonel has always been, an excellent man of business. He has organized crime as another man might organize a factory. Jewel robberies, forgery, espionage, sabotage, assassination. There is hardly anything he has not touched. Wisest of all, he knows when to stop. The game begins to get dangerous. He retires gracefully with, An enormous fortune.
2: It is rather upsetting for all of us. We are at a loose end, as it were.
3: But we are being paid off, and on a most generous scale.
0: Something, some undercurrent of mockery in her tone, made the man look at her sharply. She was smiling to herself.
2: The colonel has always been a generous paymaster. I attribute much of his success to that and to his invariable plan of providing a suitable scapegoat. If you want a thing done safely, do not do it yourself. So, here are we, every one of us incriminated up to the hilt and absolutely in his power. Every one of us. Still, you know... He is superstitious. Years ago, he went to one of those fortune-telling people. She prophesied a lifetime of success, but declared that his downfall would be brought about by a woman.
3: That is strange. Very strange. A woman, you say?
2: That is what the fortune-teller said.
3: Listen, my friend, tomorrow I go to London.
2: But your contract here...
3: I shall be away only one night, and I travel incognito. No one will ever know that I have left France.
2: Why go? Hardly for pleasure at this time of year. January, a detestable,
0: foggy month. She rose and stood in front of him, every graceful line of her, arrogant with pride.
3: You said just now that the Colonel has us all absolutely in his power. You were wrong, not me. I, a woman, have had the wit and, yes, the courage to double cross him. You remember the De Beer caper?
2: At Kimberley, just before the war broke out. The case was hushed up for some reason, was it not? I had nothing to do with it, and I never heard the details.
3: Diamonds. A hundred thousand pounds worth of diamonds. Two of us worked it, under the colonel's orders, of course. The plan was to substitute some of the De Beers diamonds for some sample diamonds brought from South America. We took them from two young prospectors, who happened to be in Kimberley at the time, Suspicion was bound to fall on them.
2: Hmm. Very clever.
3: The colonel is always clever. I did my part. But I also did one thing which the colonel had not foreseen. I kept some of the South American stones. One or two are unique and could easily be proved never to have passed through De Beers' hands. With these diamonds in my possession, I have the upper hand on our esteemed leader. Once the two young men are cleared, his part in the matter is bound to be suspected. I have said nothing all these years. I have been content to know that I had this weapon in reserve, but now matters are different. I want my price, and it will be big. "'Extraordinary.
2: "'You carry these diamonds about with you everywhere?'
3: "'I am not a fool. "'The diamonds are in a safe place "'where no one will dream of looking for them.'
2: "'I never thought you a fool, my dear lady, "'but may I venture to suggest that you are somewhat foolhardy? "'The colonel is not the type of man "'to take kindly to being blackmailed.'
3: "'I am not afraid of him. "'There is only one man I have ever feared.' And he is dead.
2: Let us hope that he will not come back to life then.
3: What do you mean?
2: I only meant that a resurrection would be awkward for you. A foolish joke.
3: Hmm. Oh no, he is dead all right. Killed in the war. He was a man who once loved me.
0: In South Africa?
3: Yes, since you ask it. In South Africa.
0: Her visitor rose. "'and reached for his hat. "'Well, you know your business best, "'but if I were
2: you, I should fear the colonel "'far more than any disillusioned lover. "'He is a man whom it is particularly easy to underestimate.
3: "'I am not a fool, and I am not alone. "'The South African mailboat docks at Southampton tomorrow, "'and on board her is a man who has come from Africa at my request. The Colonel will not have one of us to deal with, but two.
2: You are sure of this man?
3: (laughs) I am quite sure of him. As a matter of fact, he happens to be my husband.
2: The Women's Company presents The Man in the Brown Suit based on the novel by Agatha Christie.
4: Everybody's been at me right and left to write this story. I'll admit that I have certain qualifications for the task. I was mixed up in the affair from the very beginning. I was in the thick of it all through. And very fortunately, the gaps that I cannot supply from my own knowledge are amply covered by Sir Eustace Pedler's diary, of which he has kindly begged me to make use. So, here goes. Anne Bedingfield narrates her adventure. I'd always longed for adventures. My father, Professor Bedingfield. The renowned archaeologist was one of England's greatest authorities on prehistoric man. He really was a genius. Everyone admits that. His mind dwelt in Paleolithic times, and the inconvenience of life for him was that his body inhabited the modern world. Father did not care for modern man. Unfortunately, one cannot entirely dispense with modern men. One is forced to have some kind of dealings with butchers and bakers and milkmen and greengrocers. Therefore, father being immersed in the past, and mother having died when I was a baby, it fell to me to undertake the practical side of living. We never seemed to have any money. Father's celebrity was not the kind that brought in a cash return. Although he was a fellow of almost every important society and had rows of letters after his name, the general public scarcely knew of his existence. There were times when I envied Emily, our neighbor, walked out whenever occasion offered with the greengrocer's son. I had no one to walk out with. All father's acquaintances were aged professors. I yearned for adventure, for love, for romance. And I seemed condemned to an existence of drab utility. The village possessed a lending library full of tattered works of fiction, and I enjoyed their perils and romance at second hand, and went to sleep dreaming of strong men who always felled their opponent with a single blow. There was no one in Little Hamsley who even looked as though he could fell an opponent with a single blow or with several. There was the village cinema too, with a weekly episode of The Perils of Pamela. Pamela was a magnificent young woman. Nothing daunted her. She fell out of airplanes, adventured in submarines, climbed skyscrapers, and crept about in the underworld without turning a hair. She was not really clever. The master criminal of the underworld caught her each time, but the hero was always able to rescue her at the beginning of the following week's episode. I used to come out with my head in a delirious whirl, and then I would get home and find notice from the gas company threatening to cut us off if the outstanding account was not paid. And yet, though I did not suspect it, every moment was bringing adventure nearer to me. It all started after Father died. He coughed badly one evening. The following morning, I saw he had a temperature and sent for the doctor. It was double pneumonia. He died four days later. Everyone was very kind to me after Father died. Dazed as I was, I appreciated that. We had belonged together, and I had looked after him and had secretly admired his attention to study and his uncompromising devotion to science. I should have felt happier if I could have buried him in a cave with paintings of reindeer and flint implements, as he would have wanted. But the force of public opinion constrained a neat tomb with marble slab in our hideous local churchyard. It took some time to dawn upon me that the thing I had always longed for, freedom, was at last mine. I was alone and practically penniless, but free. At the same time, I realized the extraordinary kindness of all these good people. The vicar did his best to persuade me that his wife was in urgent need of a companion help. Our tiny local library suddenly made up its mind to have an assistant librarian. Finally, the doctor called upon me, and after making various ridiculous excuses for failing to send in a proper bill, he hummed and hawed a good deal, and suddenly suggested that I should marry him. I was very much astonished. I reflected a minute, and then asked him why he wanted to marry me. That seemed to fluster him a good deal and he murmured that a wife was a great help to a general practitioner. The position seemed even more unromantic than before and yet something in me urged towards its acceptance. Safety, that was what I was being offered. Safety and a comfortable home. Thinking it over now, I believe I did the little man an injustice. He was honestly in love with me. But a mistaken delicacy prevented him from pressing his suit on those lines. Anyway, my love of romance rebelled. It's extremely kind of you,
5: but it's impossible. I could never marry a man unless I loved him madly. You don't think? No, I don't.
1: But what do you propose to do?
5: Have adventures, see the world.
1: Eh, you are very young. You don't understand. I have an aunt who lives in Wales who is in want of a young lady to help her. How would that suit you?
5: No. I'm going to London. If things happen anywhere, they happen in London. I shall keep my eyes open and you'll see. Something will turn up.
4: You'll hear of me next in
5: China or Timbuktu.
4: My next visitor was Mrs. Fleming, father's solicitor from London. An ardent anthropologist herself, she was a great admirer of father's works. She was a tall, spare woman with a thin face and graying hair. Your father, as you know,
6: was a very great man. Posterity will appreciate him, but he was not a good man of business. I do not suppose you
4: understand much of these matters, so I will try to explain as clearly as I can. She explained at unnecessary length. The upshot seemed to be that I was left to face life with the sum of 87 pounds. It seemed a strangely unsatisfying amount. I waited in some trepidation for what was coming next. I feared that Mrs. Fleming would be sure to have an elderly aunt in Scotland who was in want of a bright young companion. The question is the future.
6: I understand you have no living
5: relatives. I'm alone in the world. You have friends. Everyone has been very kind to me.
6: Who would not be kind to one so young and charming? Well, my dear, we must see what can be done. Supposing? How would it be if you came to us for a time?
5: London? It's awfully kind of you. Might I really? Just while I'm looking round, I must start out to earn my living, you know?
6: I quite understand. But we will look round for... Something suitable. That is settled then. Why not return with me today? Oh, thank
5: you. But will Mr. Fleming,
6: my husband will be delighted to welcome
4: you. We will send him a wire from the station. My few personal belongings were soon packed. I was just a shade nervous of Mr. Fleming's reception, but hoped my appearance might have a sufficiently disarming effect. Mrs. Fleming was nervous too. I realized that as we went up the stairs of the tall house in a quiet Kensington Square. Mr. Fleming greeted me pleasantly enough. He was a stout, calm man. They took me up to a spotless bedroom and informed me that tea would be ready in about a quarter of an hour and left me to my own devices. With a deep sigh, I proceeded to do things to my hair. With a ruthless hand, I dragged it upwards. When I had finished... I looked almost unbelievably like the kind of orphan that walks out in a queue with a little bonnet and a red cloak. I noticed when I went down that Mrs. Fleming's eyes rested on my exposed ears with quite a kindly glance. Mr. Fleming seemed puzzled. When I went to bed, he stared earnestly at my face in the glass. Was I really good looking? Honestly, I couldn't say I thought so. It is true that a curate once told me that my eyes were like imprisoned sunshine in a dark, dark wood, but curates always know so many quotations and fire them off at random. I'd much prefer to have blue eyes than dark green ones with yellow flecks. Still, green is a good color for adventurers. I wound a black garment tightly round me, leaving my arms and shoulders bare. Then I brushed back my hair and pulled it down over my ears again put a lot of powder on my face so that my skin seemed even whiter than usual. I fished about until I found some old lip salve and I put oceans of it on my lips. Then I did under my eyes with burnt cork to darken them. Finally, I draped a red ribbon over my bear's shoulder, stuck a scarlet feather in my hair, and placed a cigarette in one corner of my mouth. The whole effect pleased me very much.
5: Anna, the adventurer. Anna the Adventurer, Episode 1, The House in Kensington. I nodded at my reflection.
4: Children are foolish things. In the succeeding weeks, I was a good deal bored. The Flemings and their friends seemed to me to be supremely uninteresting. They talked for hours of themselves and their children and of the difficulties of getting good milk. Then they would go on to servants and the difficulties of getting good servants, and of what they had said to the woman at the registry office, and of what the woman at the registry office had said to them. They never seemed to read the papers or to care about what went on in the world. They disliked traveling. Everything is so different to England, they said. The Riviera was all right, of course, because one met all one's friends there. I listened and contained myself with difficulty. Most of them were rich, The whole wide, beautiful world was theirs to wander in, and they deliberately stayed in London and talked about milkmen and servants. My affairs did not progress very fast. The house and furniture had been sold, and the amount realized had just covered our debts. As yet, I had not been successful in finding a post. I had the firm conviction that if I went about looking for adventure, adventure would meet me halfway. It is a theory of mine that one always gets what one wants. My theory was about to be proved in practice. It was early in January, the 8th to be exact. I was returning from an unsuccessful interview with a lady who said she wanted a secretary companion but really seemed to require a maid who would work 12 hours a day for 25 pounds a year. Having parted with mutual veiled impoliteness, I walked down Edgware Road and across Hyde Park to St. George's Hospital. There, I entered Hyde Park Corner Tube Station and took a ticket to Gloucester Road. Once on the platform, I walked to the extreme end of it. There were not many people on the platform, and at the extreme end, there was only myself and one man. As I passed him, I sniffed dubiously. If there is one smell I cannot bear, it's that of mothballs. This man's heavy overcoat simply reeked of them. And yet most men begin to wear their winter overcoats before January. And consequently, by this time, the smell ought to have worn off. The man was beyond me, standing close to the edge of the tunnel. He seemed lost in thought, and I was able to stare at him without rudeness. He was a small, thin man with a tanned brown face, light blue eyes, and a small, dark beard just come from abroad, I deduce. That's why his overcoat smells so. He's probably come from India. Not an officer, or he wouldn't have a beard. Perhaps a tea planter. At this moment, the man turned as though to retrace his steps along the platform. He glanced at me, and then his eyes went on to something behind me, and his face changed. It was distorted by fear, almost panic. He took a step backwards, involuntarily recoiling from some danger, forgetting that he was standing on the extreme edge of the platform and went down and over. There was a vivid flash from the rails and a crackling sound. I shrieked. People came running up. Two station officials seemed to materialize from nowhere and took command. I remained where I was, rooted to the spot. Frozen, I watched some men lifted the man off the live rail and back onto the platform.
7: Let me pass, please. I am a doctor.
4: Tall man, with a brown beard, pressed past me and bent over the motionless body. As he examined it, a curious sense of unreality seemed to possess me. A thing wasn't real. Couldn't be. Finally, the doctor stood upright and shook his head.
1: Dead.
7: There's nothing to be done.
4: A sudden nausea seized me. I turned blindly and ran up the stairs again towards the lift. I needed to get out into the open air. The doctor who had examined the body was just ahead of me. The lift was just about to go up, another having descended, and he broke into a run. As he did so, he dropped a piece of paper. I stopped, picked it up, and ran after him. But the lift gates clanged in my face, and I was left holding the paper in my hand. By the time the second lift reached the street level, there was no sign of him. I hoped it was nothing important that he had lost, and for the first time I examined it. It was a plain half-sheet of notepaper, with some figures and words scrawled upon it in pencil. 17122 Kimwarden Castle On the face of it, it certainly did not appear to be of any importance. As I stood there holding it, I involuntarily wrinkled my nose in disgust. Mothballs again! I held the paper gingerly to my nose. Yes, it smelt strongly of them. Folded up the paper carefully and put it in my bag. I walked home slowly and did a good deal of thinking. I explained to Mr. Fleming that I had witnessed a nasty accident in the tube and I was rather upset and would go to my room and lie down. He insisted on making me a cup of tea, but after that I was left to my own devices. I proceeded to carry out a plan I had formed coming home. Wanted to know what it was that had produced the curious feeling of unreality whilst I was watching the doctor examine the body. First, I lay down on the floor in the attitude of the corpse. Then, I laid a pillow down in my seat and proceeded to duplicate, so far as I could remember, every motion and gesture of the doctor. When I had finished, I had got what I wanted. I sat back on my heels and frowned at the opposite walls. There was a brief notice in the evening papers. The deceased had been identified as L.B. Carton. Nothing had been found in his pockets except the house agent's order to view a house on the river near Marlow. It was in the name of L.B. Carton, Russell Hotel. The bureau clerk from the hotel identified the man as having arrived the day before and booked a room under that name. He had registered as L.B. Carton, Kimberley, South Africa. He had evidently come straight off the steamer. The notice also expressed doubt whether it was suicide or accident. That seemed to me to make my duty clear. And when Mrs. Fleming heard my story, she quite agreed with me. You say
5: no one else was near enough to see what happened? I had the strangest feeling someone was coming up behind me. But I can't be sure. And anyway, they wouldn't be as near as I was. You think it was an accident? I am positive of it. Something alarmed him. And he stepped backwards without thinking what he was doing. But what could have alarmed him? I don't know. But there was something. He looked panic-stricken.
4: The next morning brought more mystery. The Flemings took in the daily budget. And the daily budget was having a day after its own heart. Mrs. Fleming read it out for us. Extraordinary
6: sequel to tube accident. Woman found stabbed in lonely house sensational discovery was made yesterday at the Mill House Marlow. The Mill House, which is the property of Sir Eustace Pedler, M.P., is to be let unfurnished, and in order to view this property was found in the pocket of the man who was at first thought to have committed suicide by throwing himself on the live rail at Hyde Park Corner Tube Station. In an upper room of the Mill House, the body of a beautiful young woman was discovered yesterday, strangled. She is thought to be a foreigner, but so far has not been identified. Police are reported to have a clue. Sir Eustace Pedler, the owner of the
4: mill house, is wintering on the Riviera. Nobody came forward to identify the dead woman. The inquest elicited the following facts. Shortly after one o'clock on January 8th, a well-dressed woman with a slight foreign accent had entered the offices of Messrs. Butler and Park, house agents in Knightsbridge. She explained that she wanted to rent or purchase a house on the Thames within easy reach of London. The particulars of several were given to her, including those of the Mill House. She gave the name of Mrs. de Castina and her address as the Ritz, but there proved to be no one of that name staying there. And the hotel people failed to identify the body. Mrs. James, the wife of Sir Eustace Pedler's gardener, who acted as caretaker to the mill house and inhabited the small lodge opening on the main road, gave evidence.
8: About three o'clock that afternoon, a lady came to see over the house. She produced an order from the house agents, and as is the usual custom, I gave her the keys of the house. It was situated at some distance from the lodge and I'm not in the habit of accompanying prospective tenants. A few minutes later, a young man arrived. He was tall and broad-shouldered, with a bronzed face and light grey eyes. He was clean-shaven and was wearing a brown suit. He explained to me that he was a friend of the lady who had come to look over the house, but he had stopped at the post office to send a telegram. I directed him to the house and thought no more about the matter. Five minutes later, he reappeared, handed me back the keys, and explained that he feared the house would not suit them. I did not see the lady, but I thought that she had gone on ahead. The young man seemed very upset about something. He looked like a man who'd seen a ghost. I thought he was taken
4: ill. On the following day, another lady and gentleman came to see the property and discovered the body lying on the floor in one of the upstairs rooms. Mrs. James identified it as that of the lady who had come the day before. The house agents also recognized it as that of Mrs. DeCastina. The police surgeon gave it as his opinion that the woman had been dead about 24 hours. The daily budget had jumped to the conclusion that the man in the tube had murdered the woman and afterwards committed suicide. However, as the tube victim was dead at 2 o'clock and the woman was alive and well at 3 o'clock, The only logical conclusion to come to was that the two occurrences had nothing to do with each other and that the order to view the house found in the dead man's pocket was merely a coincidence. A verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown was returned. And the police and the daily budget were left to look for the man in the brown suit. Since Mrs. James was positive that there was no one in the house when the lady entered it, and that nobody except the young man in question entered it until the following afternoon, it seemed only logical to conclude that he was the murderer of the unfortunate Mrs. De Castina. She had been strangled with a piece of stout black cord and had evidently been caught unawares with no time to cry out. The black silk handbag which she carried contained a well-filled note case and some loose change, a handkerchief, unmarked, and the return half of a first-class ticket to London. Such were the details published, broadcast by the Daily Budget, and Find the Man in the Brown Suit was their daily war cry. On an average, about 500 people wrote daily to announce their success in the quest, and tall young men with well-tanned faces cursed the day when their tailors had persuaded them to a brown suit. The accident in the tube, dismissed as coincidence, faded out of the public mind. There certainly seemed to me to be a connection of some kind between the two fatalities. In each, there was a man with a tanned face, evidently an Englishman living abroad, and there were other things. It was the consideration of these other things that finally impelled me to present myself at Scotland Yard and demanded to see whoever was in charge of the Millhouse case. My request took some time to understand, but eventually I was ushered into a small room and presented to Detective Inspector Meadows. Inspector Meadows was a small man with a ginger head and what I considered a peculiarly irritating manner. Another officer, also in plain clothes, sat unobtrusively in a corner.
5: Good morning.
9: I understand you've something to tell me that you think may be of use to us.
5: Do you know about the man who was killed in the tube? The man who had an order to view this same house at Marlow in his pocket?
9: Ah, uh, you are the Miss Bedingfeld mentioned at the inquest. Certainly the man had an order in his pocket. A lot of other people may have had too. Only they didn't happen to be killed.
5: You don't think it odd that this man had no ticket in his
9: pocket? Easiest thing in the world to drop your ticket. Done it myself.
5: And no money?
9: He had some loose change in his trousers pocket.
5: But no wallet. You don't think it's odd that the doctor never came forward afterwards?
9: A busy medical man very often doesn't read the papers. He probably forgot all about the accident.
5: You are determined to find nothing odd.
9: Young ladies are romantic, I know. Fond of mysteries and such like. Perhaps the young lady
10: would tell us what her ideas are on the subject, Inspector.
9: (sighs) If she must. You've asked questions, hinted things. Just say straight out what it is you've got in your head. You said at the inquest you were positive it wasn't suicide?
5: Yes, I'm quite certain of that. The man was frightened. Someone might have been walking up the platform towards us, someone he recognized.
9: You didn't see anyone?
5: No, I didn't turn my head. Then, as soon as the body was recovered from the line, a man pushed forward to examine it, saying he was a doctor.
9: Nothing unusual in that.
5: But he wasn't a doctor. What? He wasn't a doctor.
10: How do you know that,
9: Miss found?
5: I worked in hospital during the war and I've seen doctors handle bodies. There's a sort of deft professional callousness that this man didn't have. Besides, a doctor doesn't usually feel for the heart on the right side of the body. I didn't notice it at the time except that I felt there was something wrong. I worked it out when I got home. He would have ample opportunity to take anything he wanted from the poor man's pockets when he was examining him.
4: The inspector pulled out a pen and paper. Can you describe him at all?
5: He was tall and broad-shouldered, wore a dark overcoat and black boots, a bowler hat. He had a dark-pointed beard and gold-rimmed eyeglasses.
9: Take away the overcoat, the beard, and the eyeglasses, and there wouldn't be much to know him by. He could alter his appearance easy enough in five minutes if he wanted to, which he would do if he's the swell pickpocket you suggest. Nothing more you can tell us about him?
4: From this moment, I gave the inspector up as hopeless. I rose to depart.
5: His head was markedly brachycephalic. He will not find it so easy to alter that.
4: In the first heat of indignation, I found my next step unexpectedly easy to tackle. I had had a half-born plan in my head when I went into Scotland Yard, one to be carried out if my interview there was unsatisfactory, and it had been profoundly unsatisfactory. Things that one would shrink from attempting normally are easily tackled in a flush of anger. Without giving myself time to reflect, I walked straight to the house of Lady Nasby. Lady Nasby was the millionaire owner of the Daily Budget. She owned other papers, several of them, but the Daily Budget was her special child. Owing to the fact that an itinerary of the woman's daily proceedings had been published recently, I knew exactly where to find her at this moment. It was her hour for dictating to her secretary in her own house. I did not, of course, suppose that any young woman who chose to come and call on her would be admitted. In the card tray, in the hall of the Fleming's house, I had observed the card of the Marquess of Loamsley, England's most famous sporting peer. I had removed the card, cleaned the dust off, and penciled upon it the words, Please give Miss Bedingfield a few moments of your time. Adventurers must not be too scrupulous in their methods. A butler received the card and bore it away. Presently, a pale secretary appeared and asked me to follow him. I entered a large room as a frightened-looking typist fled past me. The door shut, and I was face to face with Lady Nasby.
1: Well, what is it?
5: What does Loamsley want? You his secretary? To begin with, I don't know Lord Loomsley, and he certainly knows nothing about me. I took his card from the tray in the house of the people I'm staying with, and I wrote those words in it myself. It was important that I should see you. Well, you see me. If you interest me, you will continue to see me for exactly two minutes longer. That will be ample, and I shall interest you. It's the millhouse mystery. If you've found the man in the brown suit, write to the editor. If you will interrupt, I shall be more than two minutes. I haven't found the man in the brown suit, but I'm quite likely to do so.
4: In as few words as possible, I told her the facts of the tube accidents, the conclusions I had drawn from them, and about my unsuccessful attempt to relay both to the authorities.
5: You seem to have a head of some kind upon your own shoulders, young woman. But it's all pretty thin, you know. Not much to go upon. And no use to us as it stands. I'm perfectly aware of that. What do you want, then? I want a job on your paper to investigate this matter. Mm, Can't do that. We've got our own special man on it. And I've got my own special knowledge. What you've just told me? Oh, no, Lady Nesby. I've still got something up my sleeve. Oh, you have, have you? What is it? When this so-called doctor got into the lift, he dropped a piece of paper. I picked it up. It smelt of mothballs. So did the dead man. The doctor didn't. The doctor must have taken it off the body. It had two words written on it and some figures. Let's see it.
4: Lady Nasby stretched out a large, thin hand toward me.
5: I think not. It's my lead. No scruples about not handing it over to the police. I went there to do so this morning. They insisted the whole thing has nothing to do with the Marlowe affair, so I thought that in the circumstances I was justified in retaining the paper. Well, my dear girl, here's what I can do for you. Go on working on this lead of yours, if you get anything, anything that's publishable, send it along, and you shall have your chance. There's always room for real talent on the daily budget, but you've got to make good first. By the way, you said two minutes and you've been three, allowing for interruptions. That's quite remarkable. Must be your scientific training.
4: My scheme has succeeded far better than I possibly could have hoped. It only now remains for me to make good on our deal. Once locked in my own room, I took out my precious piece of paper and studied it. Here was the clue to the mystery. 17122. That did not seem to lead to anything. Kilmorden Castle. That's something definite, a place, probably the cradle of an aristocratic family. Missing heir, inheritance, or possibly a picturesque ruin. Buried treasure? I made a strategic dash for my room and returned laden with books. Who's Who, a history of Scotch ancestral homes, and somebody or others, British Isles. Time passed. I searched diligently but with growing annoyance. Finally, I shut the last book with a bang. There appeared to be no such place as Kilmorden Castle. There must be such a place. Why should anyone invent a name like that and write it down on a piece of paper? Another idea occurred to me. Possibly it was a castle-style abomination in the suburbs with the high-sounding name invented by its owner. If so, it was going to be extraordinarily hard to find. Is there any other lead I could follow? The scene of the crime, of course, always done by the best sleuths. My course was clear. I must go to Marlow. But how was I to get into the house? The house had been to let. Presumably was still to let. I would be a prospective tenant. Upon request, a pleasant clerk produced the particulars of about half a dozen desirable properties. It took all my ingenuity to find objections to them.
5: And you've really nothing else? Something right on the river and with a fair amount of garden and a small lodge.
1: Of course, there's Sir Eustace Pedler's place in Marlow. The mill house, you know.
5: Is that where that horrible murder took place?
1: Perhaps you wouldn't like...
5: I don't think I should mind. And perhaps I might get it cheap in the
1: circumstances. Well, it's possible. There's no pretending it will be easy to let now. Servants talk and all that, you know. If you like the place after you've seen it, I should advise you to make an offer i write you an order.
4: If you please. I accepted them and went on my way to the mill house.
8: Nobody can go in the house, do you hear that? Fairly sick of you reporters, I am. Sir Eustace's orders are... V- I understood the house was to let. Of course, if it's already taken. Oh, I'm sure I beg your pardon, miss. I've been fairly pestered with these newspaper people. Not a minute's peace. No, the house isn't let. Nor likely to be now. Are the drains wrong? Oh, Lord, Miss, the drains is all right, but surely you've heard about that foreign lady that was done to death here? I believe I did read something about it in the papers. I should say you did, Miss. It's been all in the newspapers. The daily budget's out still to catch the man who did it. It seems as the police are no good at all. Well, I hope they'll get him. Although a nice-looking young fellow he was, and no mistake, I kind of soldierly look about him I dare say he'd been wounded in the war and sometimes they go a bit strange afterwards my sister's boy did perhaps the woman used him bad she was a vicious looking woman stood there where you're standing now was she dark or fair? you can't tell from these newspaper portraits dark hair and a very white face too white for nature I thought and her lips red something cruel I don't like to see it A little powder now and then is quite another thing.
5: Did you seem nervous or upset at all?
8: Not a bit. She was smiling to herself, quiet-like, as though she was amused at something. That's why you could have knocked me down with a feather when, the next afternoon, those people came running out calling for the police and saying there had been a murder done. I shall never get over it. And as for setting foot in that house after dark, I wouldn't do it. Why, I wouldn't even stay here at the lodge... If Sir Eustace hadn't been down on his bended knees to me, I thought Sir Eustace Pedler was at Cannes. So he was, Miss. He come back to England when he heard the news. And as to the bended knees, that was a figure of speech. His secretary, Mister Paget, offered us double pay to stay on. And as my John says, money is money nowadays. The young man now he was upset. His eyes, light eyes they were. I noticed them particular it was all shining. Excited, I thought. But I never dreamt of anything being wrong. Not even when he came out again looking all pale and shaken. How long was he in the house? Oh, not long. Matter of five minutes, maybe. How tall was he, do you think? About six foot? I should say so, maybe. He was clean-shaven, you say? Not even a mustache. Was his chin at all shiny? Well, now you come to mention it, miss. It was... However, did you know? It's a curious thing, but murderers often have shiny chins. I've never heard that before. You didn't notice what kind of head he had, I suppose. Just the ordinary kind, miss. I'll fetch you the keys, shall
4: I? My reconstruction so far I considered good. The differences between the man Mrs. James had described and my tube doctor were those of no consequence. An overcoat, a beard... Gold rimmed eyeglasses. The doctor had appeared middle-aged, but he had stooped over the body like a comparatively young man. There had been a suppleness in his young joints. The victim of the accident, the mothball man, as I called him to myself, and the foreign woman, Mrs. De Castina, or whatever her real name was, had an assignation to meet at the mill house. That was how I pieced the thing together. Either because they feared they were being watched or for some other reason, they chose the rather ingenious method of both getting in order to view the same house. Thus, their meeting there might have had the appearance of pure chance. That the mothball man had suddenly caught sight of the doctor and that the meeting was totally unexpected and alarming to him was another fact of which I am fairly sure. What had happened next? The doctor had removed his disguise and followed the woman to Marlowe, but it was possible that had he removed it rather hastily, traces of spirit gum might still linger on his chin. Hence my question to Mrs. James. Whilst occupied with my theories, I had arrived at the low old fashioned door of the mill house. Unlocking it with the key, I stepped inside. The hall was low and dark. The place smelt forlorn and mildewy. In spite of myself, I shivered. Did the woman who had come here a few days ago feel no chill of premonition as she entered this house? Did the smile fade from her lips and nameless dread close around her heart? Or had she gone upstairs, smiling still, unconscious of the doom that was soon to overtake her? My heart beat faster. Was the house really empty? Was doom waiting for me in it also? For the first time, I truly understood the meaning of the word atmosphere. There was an atmosphere in this house, an atmosphere of cruelty, of menace, of evil. Shaking off the feelings that oppressed me, I went quickly upstairs. I had no difficulty in finding the room of the tragedy. On the day the body was discovered, it had rained heavily, and large muddy boots had trampled the uncarpeted floor in every direction wondered if the murderer had left any footmarks the previous day. The room itself was almost square, with two big bay windows, plain white walls, and a bare floor, the boards being stained round the edges where the carpet had ceased. I searched it carefully, but there was not so much as a pen lying about. The gifted young detective did not seem likely to discover a neglected clue. I had brought with me a pencil and notebook, but it did not seem much to note but I duly dotted down a brief sketch of the room to cover my disappointment. As I was in the act of returning the pencil to my bag, it slipped from my fingers and rolled along the floor. The mill house was really old, and the floors were uneven. The pencil rolled steadily with increasing momentum until it came to rest under one of the windows. In the recess of each window, there was a broad window seat, underneath which there was a cupboard. My pencil was lying right against the cupboard door. The cupboard was shut, It occurred to me that if it had been open, even the smallest amount, my pencil could have rolled inside. I opened the door, and my pencil immediately rolled in and sheltered in the farthest corner. I retrieved it, noting as I did so that in the lack of light and the shape of the cupboard, I could not see my pencil, but had to feel for it. Apart from my pencil, the cupboard was empty, but decided to try the one under the opposite window. At first sight, it looked as though it was also empty, but I grubbed about and was rewarded by feeling my hand close in a hard paper cylinder, which lay in a sort of depression in the far corner of the cupboard. As soon as I had it in my hand, I knew what it was. A roll of film. I realized, of course, that this film might very well belong to Sir Eustace Peddler, and it had rolled in here and had not been found when the cupboard was empty, but I did not think so. The red paper was far too fresh-looking. It was just as dusty as it would have been had it laid there for two or three days. That is to say, it was just as dusty as it would have been had it laid there since the murder. Who had dropped it? The woman or the man? The contents of her handbag had appeared to be intact. If it had been jerked open in the struggle and the roll of film had fallen out, surely some of the loose money would have been scattered about also. No, it could not be the woman who had dropped the films. I sniffed suddenly and suspiciously. Was the smell of mothballs becoming an obsession with me? I could swear that the roll of film smelled of it also. I held them under my nose. They had, as usual, a strong smell of their own. But apart from that, I could clearly detect the odor I disliked so much. I soon found the cause. A minute shred of cloth had caught on a rough edge roll, and that shred smelled strongly of mothballs. At some time or another, the films had been carried in the overcoat pocket of the man who was killed in the tube. Was it he who had dropped them here? Hardly. His movements were all accounted for. No, it was the other man, the doctor. He had taken the films when he had taken the paper. It was he who had dropped them here during his struggle with the woman. I would have the role developed, and then I would have further developments to work upon. I had got my clue. Very elated, I left the house, returned the keys to Mrs. James, and made my way as quickly as possible to the station. On the way back to town, I took out my paper and studied it afresh. Suddenly, the figures took on a new significance. Suppose they were a date. 17-1-22. The 17th of January, 2200 hours. Today was the 14th. "'Surely that must be it, idiot that I was not to have thought of it before. "'I must find out the whereabouts of Kilmorton Castle.' 3 days. Little enough. "'Almost hopeless when one had no idea of where to look. "'It was too late to hand in the roll today. "'I had to hurry home to Kensington so as not to be late for dinner. "'It occurred to me that there was an easy way of verifying "'whether some of my conclusions were correct.' I asked Mrs. Fleming whether there had been a camera amongst the dead man's belongings. I knew that she had taken an interest in the case and was familiar with all the details. To my surprise and annoyance, she replied that there had been no camera. All L.B. Carton's effects had been gone over very carefully in the hopes of finding something that might throw light upon his state of mind. She was positive there had been no photographic equipment of any kind. That was rather a setback to my theory. If he had no camera, why would he be carrying a roll of films? I set out early next morning to take the roll to be developed. I was so fussy that I went all the way to Regent Street to the big Kodak place. I handed it in and asked for a print of each film. The man finished stacking together a heap of films packed in yellow tin cylinders and picked up my roll.
5: You've made a mistake, I think. You've given me the wrong
4: roll. This is an unexposed one. I walked out with what dignity I could muster. I dare say it is good now and again to realize what an idiot one can be, but nobody relishes the process. Then, just as I was passing one of the big shipping offices, I came to a sudden halt. In the window, was a beautiful model of one of the company's boats, and it was labeled Kenilworth Castle. The idea shot through my brain. I pushed the door open and went up to the counter.
10: Kilmorden Castle? Bound for Cape Town. On the 17th from Southampton. How
4: much is it? First
10: class, 87 pounds.
4: The coincidence was too much for me. The money Father left me, exactly the same amount.
6: First class.
4: An extract from the diary of Sir Eustace Pedler MP.
0: January 10th. It is an extraordinary thing that I never seem to get any peace. I am a man who likes a quiet life. I like my club, my bridge, a well-cooked meal, a sound wine. I like England in the summer and the Riviera in the winter. I have no desire to participate in sensational happenings. Sometimes, in front of a good fire, I do not object to reading about them in the newspaper, but that is as far as I am willing to go. My object in life is to be thoroughly comfortable. I have devoted a certain amount of thought and a considerable amount of money to further that end. But I cannot say that I always succeed. If things do not actually happen to me, they happen round me and frequently, in spite of myself, I become involved. I hate being involved all this because guy paget came into my bedroom this morning with a telegram in his hand guy is my secretary a zealous painstaking hard-working fellow admirable in every respect i know no one who annoys me more But you cannot very well dismiss a secretary because he prefers work to play, likes getting up early in the morning, and has positively no vices. The only amusing thing about the fellow is he has the face of a 14th century poisoner, the sort of man the Borgias got to do their odd jobs I wouldn't mind so much if Pageant didn't make me work, too. My idea of work is something that should be undertaken lightly and airily. Trifled with, in fact. I doubt if Guy Paget has ever trifled with anything in his life. He takes everything seriously. That is what makes him so difficult to live with. Last week... He had been away on vacation in Florence. It had been a delightful week. I had done everything I wanted to do and nothing that I did not want to do. But when I opened my eyes, I saw Paget standing between me and the light of the unearthly hour of 9 a.m. this morning. I realized my freedom was over.
10: I know you dislike being aroused early, but it is nine o'clock, and I thought that under the circumstances... What is that thing? It's a telegram from the police at Marlow. A woman has been murdered in your house. The colossal cheek. I suppose we shall uh, go back to England at once, Sir Eustace. You suppose nothing of the kind. Why should we go back? The police? What on earth have I to do with the police? Well, it is your house. That appears to be more my misfortune than my fault. It will have a very unfortunate effect upon the constituency. A member of Parliament will be
0: none the less efficient because a stray young woman comes and gets herself murdered in an empty house that belongs to him. She's a foreigner, too. If it is disreputable to have a woman murdered in your house, it only becomes more disreputable if the woman is a foreigner. I hope this won't upset Carolyn. She is too excellent a cook to lose. I don't suppose she'll want to stay after this. January 13th. It is incredible to me that anyone who can get away from England in winter does not do so. It is an abominable climate. All this trouble is very annoying. The house agents say it will be next to impossible to let the mill house after all the publicity. Carolyn has been pacified with double pay. We could have written her to that effect from Khan. As I have said all along, There was no earthly purpose to serve by our coming back. January 14. Several very surprising things have occurred. To begin with, I met with Augustus Milray, the most perfect example of an old ass the present government has ever produced. His manner oozed diplomatic secrecy as he drew me aside in the club into a quiet corner. He talked a good deal about South Africa and the industrial situation there, about the growing rumors of a strike on the rand, of the secret causes driving that strike. I listened as patiently as I could Finally, he dropped his voice to a whisper and explained that certain documents had come to light which ought to be placed in the hands of General Smuts. What's wrong with the post? Put a stamp on and drop them in the nearest letterbox. The common post. It has always been a mystery to me why governments employ king's messengers and draw such attention to their confidential documents. If you don't like the post, send one of your young foreign office fellows. He'll enjoy the trip.
9: Impossible. There are reasons, my dear peddler. I assure you, there are reasons.
0: Well, all this is very interesting, but I must be off. One minute, my dear peddler. One minute, I beg of you.
9: Now tell me, in confidence, is it not true that you intend visiting South Africa shortly yourself? I know you have large interests in Rhodesia,
0: Well, I had thought of going out in about a month's time. You couldn't possibly make it sooner. This week, in fact. I could, but I don't know that I particularly want to.
9: It would be doing the government a great service, a very great service. You would not find them ungrateful.
10: Meaning you want me to be the postman? Exactly. Your
0: position is an unofficial one. Your journey is bona fide everything would be eminently satisfactory. Well, the one thing I am anxious to do is to get out of England again as soon as possible. You will find the climate of South Africa delightful, quite delightful. My dear fellow, I know all about the climate. I was out there shortly before the war. I am
9: really much obliged to you, sir. I will send you round the package by messenger to be placed in General Smut's own hands, you understand. Kilmorden Castle sails on Saturday.
0: He shook me warmly by the hand and thanked me again effusively. I walked home reflecting on the curious byways of governmental policy. The following evening, Jarvis, my butler, informed me that a gentleman wished to see me on private business, but declined to give his name. Guy, unfortunately, was laid up with an ulcerous attack. He would have turned the unarmed man away at once, but these earnest, hard-working young men with weak stomachs are always liable to ulcerous attacks at the most inopportune times. A few minutes later, I was confronting my visitor in the library He was a well-built young fellow with a deeply tanned face. A scar ran diagonally from the corner of his eye to the jaw, disfiguring what would otherwise have been a handsome, though somewhat reckless, appearance.
7: Mr. Milray sent me to you, Sir Eustace. I am to accompany you to South Africa
0: as your secretary. My dear fellow, I've got a secretary already. I don't want another.
7: I think you do, Sir Eustace. Where is your secretary now? He's down with an ulcerous attack.
0: My visitor smiled.
7: It may or may not be an ulcerous attack. Time will show. But I can tell you this, Sir Eustace. Mr. Milray would not be surprised if an attempt were made to get your secretary out of the way. You have no need of fear for yourself. You are not threatened. Your secretary out of the way, access to you would be easier. In any case, Mr. Milray wishes me to accompany you. The passage money will be our fare, of course, but you will take the necessary steps about the passport, as though you have decided that you have needed the services of the second secretary. You will say nothing to anyone as to my accompanying you. He turned to depart. It might be just as well if I
0: knew my new secretary's name.
7: Harry. Harry Rayburn.
4: It is most undignified for a heroine to be seasick. In books, when everybody else is ill, she alone staggers along the deck, braving the elements and positively rejoicing in the storm. I regret to say that at the first roll the Kilmorden gave, I turned pale and hastened below deck. A sympathetic stewardess received me. She suggested dry toast and ginger ale. I remained groaning in my cabin for three days. I had no longer any interest in solving mysteries. I was a totally different Anne to the one who had rushed back to the South Kensington Square so jubilantly from the shipping office. Mr. Fleming, at our parting, had slipped an envelope into my hand. Inside it, I found five new crisp five-pound notes and the words, I hope you will not be offended and will accept this with our love. The Flemings were a very good, kind couple, though I could not have continued to live in the same house with them. So here I was, with 25 pounds in my pocket, facing the world and pursuing my adventure. It was on the fourth day that the stewardess finally urged me up on deck. She tempted me with the arrival at Madeira. Hope rose within me. I could leave the boat and go ashore. Anything for dry land. Muffled in coats and shawls, and weak as a kitten on my legs, I was hauled up and deposited, unmoving on a deck chair. I lay there with my eyes closed, hating life. The purser, a fair-haired young man, the round boyish face, came and sat down beside me. Hello.
9: Feeling rather sorry for yourself, eh?
4: Uh,
5: yes.
9: Ah, you won't know yourself in another day or two. We've had rather a nasty dusting in the bay, but there's smooth weather ahead. Think you'll never recover, eh? I've seen people much worse than you, and two days later, they were the life and soul of the ship. You'll be the same.
4: I did not feel sufficiently well enough to tell him outright that he was a liar. I endeavored to convey it by a glance. He chatted pleasantly for a few minutes more, and he mercifully departed. People passed and repassed, brisk couples exercising, jumping children, laughing young people, a few other pale sufferers lay like myself in deck chairs. The air was pleasant, crisp, and the sun was shining brightly. And sensibly, I felt a little cheered. I began to watch the people. One woman in particular interested me. She was about 30, medium height, and very fair with a round dimpled face and very blue eyes. Her clothes, though plain, had that indefinable sense of fit about them, which spoke of Paris. Also, in a pleasant but self-possessed way, she seemed to own the ship. Deck stewards ran to and fro obeying her commands. She had a special deck chair and an apparently inexhaustible supply of cushions. She changed her mind three times as to where she would like them placed. Throughout it all, she remained attractive and charming. She appeared to be one of those rare people in the world who know what they want see that they get it, and manage to do so without being offensive to anyone. I decided that if I ever recovered, it would amuse me to talk to her. We reached Madeira about midday. I was still too weak to move, but I enjoyed the merchants who came on board and spread their merchandise about the decks. There were flowers, too. I buried my nose in an enormous bunch of violets and felt distinctly better. In fact, I thought I might just possibly last up to the end of the voyage. When the stewardess spoke of the merits of a little chicken broth, I only protested a little. When it came, I enjoyed it. The attractive woman had been ashore. She came back escorted by a tall, soldierly-looking man with dark hair and a bronzed face whom I had noticed striding up and down the deck earlier in the day. He was about 40, with a touch of graying hair at either temple, and was easily the best-looking man on board. When the stewardess brought me up an extra blanket, I asked her if she knew who the woman was. That's the Honorable Mrs. Clarence Blair. You must have read about her in the papers. Mrs. Blair was very well known indeed as one of the smartest women of the day. I observed with some amusement that she was the center of a good deal of attention. Several people attempted to scrape acquaintance with the pleasant informality that a boat allows. I admire the polite way that Mrs. Blair denied them. She appeared to have adopted the strong silent man as her special cavalier, and he seemed duly sensible of the privilege accorded him. The following morning, to my surprise, after taking a few turns around the deck with her attentive companion, Mrs. Blair came to a halt by my chair. Feeling
5: better this morning? I feel slightly more like a human being. You
11: did look ill yesterday. Colonel Race and I decided that we should have the excitement of the funeral at sea. But you've disappointed us. (laughs) Being up in the air has done me good. Being shut up in those stuffy cabins would kill anyone. You've got an outside one, I hope.
4: I shook my head. She dropped into the seat by my side and dismissed her companion with a little nod.
11: My dear girl, why don't you change? There's plenty of room. A lot of people got off at Madeira, and the boat's very empty. Talk to the purser about it. He's a nice little boy. He changed me into a beautiful cabin because I didn't care for the one I'd got. You talk to him at lunchtime when you go down. I can barely move. (laughs) Don't be silly. Come and take a walk now with me.
4: I felt very weak on my legs at first. But as we walked briskly up and down, I began to feel a brighter and better being. After a turn or two, Colonel Race joined us again.
12: You can see the grand peak of Tenerife from the other side.
4: Can
11: we? Can I get a photograph of it, do you think?
12: No, but that won't deter you from snapping off at it.
11: (laughs) You are unkind. Some of my photographs are very good.
4: We all went round to the other side of the deck. There, glimmering white and snowy, enveloped in a delicate rose-colored mist, rose the glistening pinnacle. I uttered an exclamation of delight. Mrs. Blair ran for her camera. Undeterred by Colonel Race's sardonic comments, she snapped vigorously.
11: There, that's the end of the roll the thing at flash all the time.
12: I always like to see a child with a new toy.
4: How horrid you are. But I've got another roll. She produced it in triumph from the pocket of her sweater, but a sudden roll of the boat upset her balance, and as she caught the rail to steady herself, the roll of films tumbled over the side. <gasps> Do you think they've gone overboard?
12: No, you may have been fortunate enough to hit an unlucky steward on the deck below.
4: There was a deafening blast and a horn from the other side of the deck. Lunch. I've had nothing to eat since breakfast, except
11: two cups of tea. Lunch, Miss Beddingfeld? I do feel rather hungry for a change. Splendid. You're sitting at the purser's table, if I remember. Tackle him about the
4: cabin. I found my way down to the dining cabin, began to eat gingerly, and finished by consuming an enormous meal. The purser, my friend of yesterday, congratulated me on my recovery. Everyone was changing cabins today, he told me, and he promised that my things should be moved to an outside one without delay. I looked round at the other tables. Mrs. Blair was sitting at the captain's table, Colonel Race next to her. On the other side of the captain was a distinguished-looking gray-haired man, a good many I had already noticed. But there was one man with them who had not previously appeared on deck. Had he done so, he could hardly have escaped my notice. He was tall and dark, and has such a peculiarly sinister type of aura that I was quite startled. I asked the purser with some curiosity who he was. That man? Well, that's Sir Eustace Pedler's secretary. He's been very seasick, poor
9: chap. He's not come up before. Sir Eustace has got two secretaries with him, and the sea's been too much for the both of them. The other fellow hasn't turned up yet. This man's name is Paget.
4: So, Sir Eustace Peddler, the owner of the millhouse, was on board. Probably only a coincidence. And yet... The more I studied the secretary's face, the less I liked it. Its even pallor, the secretive expression, the sinister eyes, it all gave me a feeling of unease. Leaving the dining cabin at the same time as he did, I was close behind him as he went up on deck. He was speaking to Sir Eustace, and I overheard a fragment or two.
10: I'll see about the cabinet once, then, shall I? It's impossible to work in yours with all your trunks.
0: My dear fellow, my cabin is intended for A, me to sleep in, and B, to attempt to dress in. I never had any intention of allowing you to sprawl about the place making an infernal clicking with that typewriter of yours.
4: I parted company from them and went below to see if my removal was in progress. I found my steward busy at the task. He accompanied me to my new lodgings.
1: Very nice cabin, miss. D-deck, number 13.
4: Oh, no, not
5: 13. 13 is the one thing I am superstitious about. Isn't there any other cabin I can have?
1: Well, there's 17 just along the starboard side. That was empty this morning, but I rather fancy it's been allotted to someone. Still, as the gentleman's things aren't in yet, and as gentlemen aren't anything so superstitious as ladies, I dare say he wouldn't mind changing.
4: I hailed the proposition gratefully, and the steward departed to obtain permission from the purser. He returned grinning. He led the way to 17. It was not quite as large as number 13, but I found it eminently satisfactory. Just as the steward was about to fetch my luggage, the man with a sinister face appeared in the doorway.
10: Excuse me. This cabin is reserved for the use of Sir Eustace Pedler. It's all right, sir. We're fitting up number 13 instead. No, It was number 17 I was to have. Number 13 is a better cabin, sir, much larger. I specially selected number 17, and the purser said I could have it.
5: I'm sorry, but number 17 has been allotted to me.
10: I can't agree to that. The other cabin's just the same, only better. I want number 17.
4: Another man appeared in the door. I recognized from his walks on the deck the Reverend Edward Chichester.
2: What is all this? Steward, put my things in here. This is my cabin.
5: I beg your pardon, it's my cabin.
2: It is allotted to Sir Eustace Peddler. I'm sorry to have to dispute the matter. You're to have number 28 on the port side, a very good cabin, sir. I am afraid that I must insist. Number 17 was the cabin promised to me.
4: The Reverend gave a meek smile, which failed to mask his determination to get his own way. He edged himself sideways into the cabin, refusing to leave. We had come to an impasse. Each one of us was determined not to give way. Strictly speaking, I, at any rate, might have retired from the contest and eased matters by offering to accept cabin 28. So long as I did not have 13, it was immaterial to me what other cabin I had. My blood was up. I had not the least intention of being the first to give way to either of these two. Many men have been hated for less. We all said the same things over again. The steward assured us, even more strongly, that both the other cabins were better cabins. None of us paid any attention to him. Paget began to lose his temper. Chichester kept his serenely. With an effort, I also kept mine. And still none of us would give way an inch. A wink and a nod from the steward gave me my cue. I faded unobtrusively from the scene, slipping out the door. I was lucky enough to encounter the purser almost immediately. There are no people like sailors for being nice to women. The purser strode directly to the scene and the disputants that number 17 was my cabin. They could have numbers 13 and 28 respectively or stay where they were, whichever they chose. I permitted my eyes to tell him what a hero he was and then installed myself in my new domain. The encounter had done me worlds of good. The sea was smooth, the weather growing daily warmer. Seasickness was a thing of the past. I went up on deck. Tea was served, and I ate heartily. After tea, I played shuffleboard with some pleasant young men. And they were extraordinarily nice to me. I felt that life was satisfactory and delightful. The dressing horn came as a surprise, and I hurried to my new cabin. The stewardess was awaiting me with a troubled face.
5: There's a terrible smell in your cabin, miss. What it is, I'm sure I can't think, but I doubt if you'll be able to sleep here. There's a deck cabin up on Sea deck, I believe. You might move into that, for the night anyway.
4: The smell really was pretty bad, quite nauseating. I told the stewardess I would think over the question of moving whilst I dressed. What was the smell? Dead rat? No, worse than that, and quite different. Yet I knew it from somewhere. It was something I had smelt before. Something... Asafoetida. I had got it. I had worked in a hospital dispensary during the war for a short time and had become acquainted with the various nauseous drugs. Asafoetida. That was it. I sank down on the sofa. Somebody had put a pinch of asafoetida in my cabin. Why? So that I should vacate it? Why were they so anxious to get me out? I thought of the scene this afternoon from a rather different point of view. What was there about cabin 17 that made so many people anxious to get a hold of it? The other two cabins were better cabins. Why had both men insisted on sticking to number 17? 17. How the number persisted. It was on the 17th I had sailed from Southampton. It was a 17. I stopped with a sudden gasp. Quickly unlocked my suitcase and took my precious paper from its place of concealment and some rolled stockings. 17, 1, 22. I had taken that for a date and time, the date of departure of the Kim Warden Castle. Supposing I was wrong, when I came to think of it, would anyone write down a date thinking it necessary to put the time as well as the month? Supposing 17 meant cabin 17. And 1. The time, 1 o'clock. Then 22 must be the date. I was excited. I was sure that I had hit on the right trail at last. One thing was clear. Must not move out of the cabin. Tomorrow was the 22nd, and at 1 a.m. or 1 p.m., something would happen. It was now 7 o'clock. In six hours, I should know. I don't know how I got through the evening. I retired to my cabin fairly early. I had told the stewardess that I had a cold in the head and didn't mind smells. She still seemed distressed, but I was firm. The evening seemed interminable. I duly retired to bed, but in view of emergencies, I swathed myself in a thick flannel dressing gown and encased my feet in slippers. Thus attired, I felt that I could spring up and take an active part in anything that happened. What did I expect to happen? Vague fancies, most of them wildly improbable, flitted through my brain. But one thing I was firmly convinced of at one o'clock, something would happen. At various times, I heard my fellow passengers coming to bed. Fragments of conversation, laughing good nights, floated in through the open transom. Then, silence. Most of the lights went out. There was still one in the passage outside, and there was, therefore, a certain amount of light in my cabin. I heard eight bells go. The hour that followed seemed the longest I had ever known. My deductions were wrong. If nothing happened at one o'clock, I should have made a fool of myself. My heart beat painfully. One o'clock. And nothing. Wait. I heard the quick light patter of feet running. Running along the passage. Then with the suddenness of a bombshell, my cabin door burst open and a man almost fell inside. They're after me! It was not a moment for argument or explanation. I could hear footsteps outside. I had about 40 seconds in which to act. With one arm, I pulled out my cabin trunk. He slipped down behind it under the bunk. I raised the lid. At the same time, with the other hand, I pulled down the wash basin. A deft movement in my hair was screwed into a tiny knot on the top of my head. A lady with her hair screwed into an unbecoming knot, and in the act of removing a piece of soap from her trunk with which, apparently to wash her neck, could hardly be suspected of harboring a fugitive. There was a knock at the door, and without waiting for me to say, come in, it was pushed open. don't know what I expected to see. I think I had a vague idea of Mr. Padgett brandishing a revolver. certainly did not expect to see a night stewardess with an inquiring face and looking the essence of respectability.
2: I beg your pardon, miss. I thought
5: you called out. No, I didn't.
10: I'm so sorry for interrupting you.
5: That's all right. I couldn't sleep. I I thought a wash would do me good.
2: There's a gentleman about who's rather drunk... And we're afraid that he might get into one of the ladies' cabins and frighten them. How dreadful.
5: He won't come in here, will he? Oh, I don't think so, miss. Ring the bell if he does. Good night. Good night.
4: I opened the door and peeped down the corridor. Except for the retreating form of the stewardess, there was nobody in sight. Drunk. So that was the explanation of it. I pulled the cabin trunk out a little farther.
5: Come out at once, please.
4: There was no answer. I peered under the bunk. My visitor lay immovable. He seemed to be asleep. I tugged at his shoulder. He did not move. Then I saw something that made me catch my breath. A small scarlet spot on the floor. Using all my strength, I succeeded in dragging the mat out into the middle of the cabin. The dead whiteness of his face showed that he had fainted. I found the cause of his fainting easily enough. He had been stabbed under the left shoulder blade. Nasty, deep wound. I got his coat off and set to work to attend to it. At the sting of the cold water, he stirred and sat up. Keep still, please.
7: Thank you. I don't need anything done for me.
4: That is a
5: nasty wound. You must let me dress it.
7: You will do nothing of the kind.
5: I cannot
4: congratulate you upon your manners.
7: I can least relieve you of my presence.
4: He started for the door but reeled as he did so. With an abrupt movement, I pushed him down upon the sofa.
5: Don't be a fool. You don't want to go bleeding all
4: over the ship, do you? He seemed to see the sense of that, for he sat quietly whilst I bandaged up the wound as best I could. There. That will have to do for the
5: present. Are you better tempered now? And do you feel inclined to tell me what it's all about?
7: I'm sorry I can't satisfy your curiosity. Why not? If you want a thing broadcasted, tell a woman. Otherwise, keep your mouth shut.
4: How dare you? He rose to his feet. We were facing each other, glaring at each other with the ferocity of bitter enemies. For the first time, I took in the details of his appearance. The close-cropped dark hair, lean jaw, scar on the cheek, the curious light gray eyes that looked onto mine with a sort of reckless mockery hard to describe. There was something dangerous about him.
5: You haven't thanked me yet for saving your
4: life? I saw him flinch distinctly. Intuitively, I knew that he hated above all to be reminded that he owed his life to me. I didn't care.
5: I saved your life and I'm waiting for you to say thank you.
4: If Lux could have killed, I think he would have liked to kill me then. He pushed roughly past me. The door he turned back and spoke over his shoulder.
7: I shall not thank you, now or at any other time, but I acknowledge the debt. Someday I will pay it.
4: Then he was gone, leaving me with clenched hands, my heart beating like a drum in my chest, and the rather peculiar feeling that it wasn't hate I'd felt between us at all. There were no further excitements that night. I had breakfast in bed and got up late the next morning. Mrs. Blair hailed me as I came on deck. Good morning, magic girl.
11: Sit down here by me. Why do you call me that? Do you mind? I've called you that in my own mind from the beginning. It's the mysterious element in you that makes you so different from everyone else. I decided in my own mind that you and Colonel Race were the only two people on board who wouldn't bore me to death to talk to.
5: That's funny. I thought the same about you. Only it's more understandable in your case. You're... You're such an exquisitely finished product. Not badly put. Tell me all about yourself, magic girl. Why are you going to South Africa? I'm trying to finish a book my father was working on before he died. He was an archaeologist specializing in Neanderthal man. So you're Charles Bedingfeld's daughter.
11: I thought you weren't a mere provincial miss. Are you going to Broken Hill to study the skulls?
5: I may. I've got other plans as well.
11: What a mysterious minx you are. But you do look tired this morning. Didn't you sleep well? I can't keep awake on board a boat. Except last night, the most unexpected thing happened. An idiot of a steward woke me up in the middle of the night to return that roll of film I dropped yesterday. He did it in the most melodramatic manner. Stuck his arm through the vent and dropped them nearly in the middle of my bed. I thought it was a bomb for a moment. Here's your colonel. He's not my Colonel, particularly. (laughs) In fact, he admires you very much, Magic Girl. So don't run away. I want to get
5: something to tie my hair first. It will be more comfortable than a hat.
4: I slipped away. For some reason or other, I was uncomfortable with Colonel Race. He was one of the few people who were capable of making me feel shy. I went down to my cabin and began looking for a long ribbon or a scarf with which I could restrain my rebellious hair. Now, I am a tidy person, I like my things arranged in a certain way and I keep them so. I had no sooner opened my drawer than I realized that somebody had been disarranging my things. Everything had been turned over and scattered. I looked in the other drawers and the small hanging cupboard. They told me the same tale. It was as though someone had been making a hurried and ineffectual search for something. I sat down on the edge of the bunk with a grave face. Who had been searching my cabin? "'and what had they been looking for? "'Was it the half-sheet of paper "'with scribbled figures and words?' "'I shook my head, dissatisfied. "'Surely that was past history now. "'What else could there be?' "'The events of last night, "'though exciting, "'had not really done anything "'to elucidate matters. "'Who was the young man "'who had burst into my cabin "'so abruptly? "'I had not seen him on board previously, "'either on deck or in the saloon. "'Was he one of the ship's company "'or was he a passenger?' Who had stabbed him? Why had they stabbed him? And why should cabin number 17 figure so prominently? It was all a mystery, but there is no doubt that some very peculiar occurrences were taking place on the Kilmorden Castle. Setting aside my visitor of the night before, but promising myself that I would discover him on board before another day had passed, I selected the following persons as worthy of my notice. 1. Sir Eustace Pedler. He was the owner of the Mill House, and his presence on the Kilmorton Castle seemed something of a strange coincidence. Two, Mr. Paget, his sinister-looking secretary, whose eagerness to obtain Cabin 17 had been so very obvious. Three, the Reverend Edward Chichester. All I had against him was his obstinacy over Cabin 17, and that might be entirely due to his own peculiar temperament. Obstinacy can be an amazing thing but a little conversation with Mr. Chichester would not come amiss, I decided. Hastily, tying a handkerchief round my hair, I went up on deck again, full of purpose. I was in luck. My quarry was leaning against the rail, drinking tea.
5: I hope you've forgiven me over Cabin 17.
2: I consider it unchristian to bear a grudge, but the purser had distinctly promised me that cabin.
5: Pursers are such busy men, aren't they? I suppose they're bound to forget sometimes. Is this your first visit to Africa?
2: To South Africa, yes. I have worked for the last two years among the tribes in the interior of East Africa.
4: How thrilling. As the words left my lips, another idea struck me. If Mr. Chichester had indeed spent the last two years in the interior of Africa, how was it that he was not more sunburnt? His skin was as pink and white as a baby's. Surely there was something fishy there. Yet his manner and voice were so absolutely it. Too much so, perhaps. Was he just a little like a stage clergyman? I cast my mind back to the curates I had known at Little Hampsley. Some of them I had liked. Some of them I had not. But certainly none of them had been quite like Mr. Chichester. They had been human. He was a glorified type. I was debating all this when Sir Eustace Pedler passed down the deck. Just as he was abreast of Mr. Chichester, he stooped and picked up a piece of paper which he handed to him.
0: You've dropped something.
4: He passed on without stopping and so probably did not notice Mr. Chichester's agitation. I did. Whatever it was he had dropped, its recovery agitated him considerably. He turned a sickly green and crumpled up the sheet of paper into a ball. My suspicions were accentuated a hundredfold. He caught my eye and hurried into explanations.
2: Ah, a fragment of a sermon I was composing.
4: Indeed. He soon left with a muttered excuse. I wish that I had been the one to pick up that paper and not Sir Eustace Pedler. One thing was clear. Mr. Chichester could not be exempted from my list of suspects. I was inclined to put him top of the three. After lunch... When I came up to the lounge for coffee, I noticed Sir Eustace and Paget sitting with Mrs. Blair and Colonel Race. Mrs. Blair welcomed me with a smile, so I went over and joined them.
11: I love the Italians. They're so obliging. You ask them the way somewhere, and instead of saying first to the right, second to the left, or something that one could follow, they pour out a flood of well-meaning directions, and when you look bewildered, they take you kindly by the arm and walk all the way there with you.
0: Paget. Is that your experience in Florence? Oh, uh, quite so. Yes,
4: uh, quite so. For some reason, the question seemed to disconcert Mr. Paget. The murmured excuse, he rose and left the table.
0: I'm beginning to suspect my secretary of having committed some dark deed in Florence. Whenever Florence or Italy is mentioned, he changes the subject or bolts.
11: Perhaps he murdered someone there. He looks... Oh, I hope I'm not hurting your feelings, Sir Eustace, but he does look as though he might murder someone.
0: Yes! (laughs) It amuses me sometimes, especially when one knows as well as I do how essentially law-abiding and respectable the poor fellow really is. He's been with you some time, hasn't he, Sir Eustace? Six years.
11: He must be quite invaluable to you.
0: Oh, invaluable. Yes, quite invaluable. But his face should really inspire you with confidence, my dear lady. No self-respecting murderer would ever consent to look like one. The Ripper, I believe, was likely one of the pleasantest-looking fellows imaginable.
4: There was a slight rattle behind us. I turned quickly. Mr. Chichester had dropped his coffee cup. Our party soon broke up. Mrs. Blair went below to sleep, and I went out on deck. Colonel Race followed me.
12: You're very elusive, Miss Bedingfield. I looked for you everywhere last night at the dance.
5: Oh, I went to bed early.
12: Are you going to run away tonight, too? Or are you going to dance with me?
5: I shall be very pleased to dance with you. But Mrs.
4: Blair...
12: Mrs. Blair doesn't care for dancing. And you do? I care for dancing with you.
4: I was a little afraid of Colonel Race. Nevertheless, I was enjoying myself. This was better than discussing fossilized skulls with stuffy old professors. I danced several times with him that evening. He danced well. When the dancing was over and I was thinking of going to bed, he suggested a turn round the deck. We walked round three times and finally settled into two deck chairs. There was nobody else in sight.
12: Do you know, Miss Beddingfield? I think that I once met your father. Very interesting man on his own subject. It's a subject that has a special fascination for me. In my humble way, I've done a bit in that line myself.
4: Colonel Race's boast was not an idle one. He knew a great deal. At the same time, as he talked, he made one or two curious mistakes. Slips of the tongue I might almost have thought them. But he was quick to take his cue from me and to cover them up. Once he spoke of the Middle Paleolithic period as following the Upper Paleolithic, an absurd mistake for one who knew anything of the subject. It was 12 o'clock when I went to my cabin. I was still puzzling over those discrepancies. Was it possible that he really knew nothing of archaeology? I shook my head, vaguely dissatisfied with that solution. Just as I was dropping off to sleep, I sat up with a sudden start as another idea flashed into my head. Had he been pumping me? Were those slight inaccuracies just tests to see whether I really knew what I was talking about? In other words, did he suspect me of not being genuinely Anne Bedingfield? Why? An extract from the diary of Sir Eustace Peddler, MP. There is something to be said for life
0: on board ship. It is peaceful. Fortunately, I am an excellent sailor. Paget, poor fellow, is not. He began turning green as soon as we were out of the Solent. I presume my other so-called secretary is also seasick. At any rate, he has not yet made his appearance. But perhaps it is not seasickness but high diplomacy. The great thing is that I have not been worried by him. On the whole, the people on board are a mangy lot. Only two decent bridge players and one decent-looking woman, Mrs. Clarence Blair. I've met her in London, of course. She is one of the only women I know who can lay claim to a sense of humor. I enjoy talking to her, and should enjoy it more if it were not for a long-legged, silent ass who attached himself to her like a mosquito. I cannot think that this Colonel Race really amuses her. He's good-looking in his way, but dull as ditch water. One of these strong, silent men that lady novelists and young girls always rave over. Guy Paget struggled up on deck after we left Madeira and began babbling about work. What the devil does anyone want to work for on board ship? It is true that I promised my publishers my memoirs early this summer, but what of it? Who really reads Reminiscences, Old Ladies in the Suburbs? I've knocked against a certain number of so-called famous people in my lifetime. With the assistance of Paget, I invent insepid anecdotes about them. And the truth of the matter is, Paget is too honest for the job. You look a perfect wreck still, my dear chap. What you need is a deck chair in the sun. The work must wait. There's no room
10: to work in your cabin, Sir Eustace. It's full of trunks, and we could hardly
0: work in my little broom closet. I know Paget's little broom closets. He usually has the best cabin on the ship. I'm sorry the captain didn't turn out for you this time. Perhaps you'd like to dump some of your extra luggage in my cabin? Well, if I could get rid of the typewriter and the stationary trunk. The stationary trunk weighs several solid tons. It causes endless unpleasantness with the porters, and it is the aim of your life to foist it on me. We'll get an extra cabin. The thing seemed simple enough, but Paget is a person who loves to make mysteries. He came to me the next day with a face like a biblical conspirator.
10: You know you told me to get cabin 17 for an office.
0: Has the stationary trunk
10: jammed in the doorway? The doorways are the same size in all the cabins, but I tell you, Sir Eustace, there's something very strange about that cabin. If you
0: mean that it's haunted, we're not going to sleep there. So I don't see what it matters. Ghosts don't affect typewriters. Paget explained that it wasn't a ghost. He told me a long garbled story. Apparently he and a Mr. Chichester and a girl called Beddingfield had almost come to blows over the cabin. Needless to say, the girl had won, and Paget was apparently feeling sore over the matter. Both 13 and 28 are better cabins, but they wouldn't look at them. Nor would you. You told me to get cabin 17. My dear fellow, I mentioned number 17 because I happened to observe that it was vacant. But I didn't mean you to make a stand to the death about it, Cabin 13 or 18 would have done us equally well. There's something more, though.
10: Miss Beddingfield got the cabin, but this morning I saw Sir Chester coming out of it in a furtive sort of way.
0: If you're trying to get up a nasty scandal about Chichester, who is a missionary, though a perfectly poisonous person, and that Anne Beddingfeld, I don't believe a word of it. Anne Beddingfeld is an extremely nice girl with particularly good legs. I should say she has far and away the best legs on board. As you've made her acquaintance, you might ask her to dine at our table tonight. It's the fancy dress dance. By the way, you'd better go down and select a fancy costume for me. Surely you
10: will not go in fancy dress. What do you mean?
0: Of course I shall wear a fancy dress. So will you. And order a table for six in the saloon, We'll have the captain, the girl with the nice legs, Mrs. Blair...
10: You won't get Mrs. Blair without Colonel Race. He's asked her there to dine with him. Who is Race? They say he's a Secret Service chap, Sir Eustace. Rather a
0: great gun, too. But, of course, I don't know for certain. Isn't that like the government? Here's a man on board whose business it is to carry about secret documents... And they go giving them to a peaceful outsider who only asks to be let alone. If you ask me, the whole thing is very strange,
10: Sir Eustace. Look at that illness of mine before we
0: started. My dear fellow, that was an ulcerous attack. You're always having ulcerous attacks. Well, it wasn't the usual sort of attack. This time... For God's sake, don't go into the details of
10: your condition. I don't want to hear them. Very well, Sir Eustace but my belief is that I was deliberately poisoned. Ah, you've been talking to Rayburn. At any rate, Sir Eustace, he thinks so, and he should be in a position to know. By the way, where is the chap? I've not set eyes on him since we came on board. He gives out that he's ill and stays in his cabin, but that's camouflage, I'm sure, so that he can watch better. Watch? Over your safety, Sir Eustace, in case an attack should be made upon
0: you. You're such a cheerful fellow. I trust that your imagination runs away with you. If I were you, I should go to the dance as a death's head or an executioner. It will suit your mournful style. That shut him up for the time being. I went on deck. The Bedingfeld girl was deep in conversation with the missionary Chichester. A man of my figure hates stooping, but I had the courtesy to pick up a bit of paper that was fluttering around the parson's feet and returned it to him. I couldn't help seeing what was written on the sheet of paper. There was just one sentence. Don't try to play a lone hand, or it will be the worse for you. Who is this fellow Chichester? He looks mild as milk, but looks are deceptive. I sank gracefully into my deck chair by the side of Mrs. Blair, thereby interrupting her tete-a-tete with race, and remarked that I didn't know what the clergy were coming to nowadays. Then I asked her to dine with me on the night of the fancy dress dance. Somehow or other, race managed to get included in the invitation. After lunch, the Bedingfeld girl came and sat with us for coffee. I was right about her legs. They are the best on the ship. I shall certainly ask her to dinner as well. I would very much like to know what mischief Paget was up to in Florence. Whenever Italy is mentioned, he goes to pieces. If I did not know how intensely respectable he is, I should suspect him of some disreputable. I wonder now. Paget with a guilty secret. It was a curious evening. The only costume that fit me in the ship's emporium was that of a teddy bear. I don't mind playing teddy bears with some children on a Christmas Eve, but it's hardly an ideal costume for the equator. However, I created a good deal of merriment and won first prize. Mrs. Blair refused to dress up, Apparently, she is at one with Paget on the matter. Colonel Race followed her example. Anne Bedingfield had concocted a fortune-teller costume for herself and looked extraordinarily well. Paget said he had a headache and didn't appear. To replace him, I asked a quaint little fellow called Reeves. He's a prominent member of the South African Labour Party, Horrible little man, but I want to keep in with him as he gives me information that I need. I want to understand this rand business from both sides. Dancing was a hot affair. I danced twice with Anne Bedingfeld, and she had to pretend to like it. I danced once with Mrs. Blair, who didn't trouble to pretend, and I victimized various other girls whose appearance struck me favorably. Then we went down to supper. I had ordered champagne. It seemed to have hit on the one thing that would loosen Colonel Race's tongue. Far from being taciturn, the man became actually talkative. For a while, this amused me, Then it occurred to me that Colonel Race, and not myself, was becoming the life and soul of the party. He chaffed me at length about keeping a diary.
12: It will reveal all your discretions one of these days, Peddler.
0: My dear Race, I venture to suggest that I am not quite the fool you think me. I may commit indiscretions, but I don't write them down in black and white. After my death, my executors will know my opinion of a great many people, but I doubt if they will find anything to add or detract from their opinion of me. A diary is useful for recording the idiosyncrasies of other people, but not one's own. There is
12: such a thing as unconscious self-revelation, though.
0: In the eyes of the psychoanalyst, all things are vile. You must have had a very
5: interesting life, Colonel Race.
0: The girl set Race off all right. He began to tell lion stories. A man who has shot lions in large quantities has an unfair advantage over other men. It seemed to me it was time I, too, told a lion story. That reminds me of a rather exciting tale I heard. A friend of mine was out on a shooting trip somewhere in East Africa. One night, he came out of his tent for some reason and was startled by a low growl. He turned sharply, and saw a lion crouching to spring. He had left his rifle in the tent. Quick as a thought, he ducked, and the lion sprang over his head. Annoyed at having missed him, the animal growled and prepared to spring again. Again he ducked, and again the lion sprang right over him. And this happened a third time. But by now, it was close to the entrance of the tent, he darted in and seized his rifle. When he emerged, rifle in hand, the lion had disappeared. And that puzzled him greatly. He crept round the back of the tent where there was a little clearing. There, sure enough, was the lion, busily practicing low jumps. (laughs) On another occasion, This friend of mine had a second curious experience. He was trekking across country and anxious to arrive at his destination before the heat of the day, he ordered his boys to tie the mules to the vehicle whilst it was still dark. They had some trouble in doing so as the mules were very on edge, but at last they managed it and a start was made. The mules raced along like the wind, and when daylight came, they saw why. In the darkness, the boys had tied a lion as the caboose.
11: Oh, I must go to Rhodesia. After what you have told us, Colonel Race, I simply must. It's a horrible journey, though, five days on a hot train.
0: You must join me on my private car.
11: Oh, Sir Eustace, do you really mean it?
0: I do mean it, of course.
11: Just about another week and we shall be in South Africa.
0: Ah, South Africa. Her fruit and her farms, her wool and her wattles, her herds and her hides, her gold and... Her diamonds.
5: Diamonds? Diamonds.
0: They both addressed Colonel Race. I had been to the De Beers mines in Kimberley, too, but I didn't manage to say so in time. Race was being inundated with questions. Race answered their questions and showed a good knowledge of his subject. He described the methods of housing the miners, the searches instituted, and the various precautions that De Beers took to keep the diamonds at Kimberley Safe.
11: Then it's practically impossible to steal any diamonds.
0: Nothing's
12: impossible, Mrs. Blair. Thefts do occur.
11: Yes, but on a large scale?
12: Once. In recent years. Just before the war. You must remember the case, Peddler. You were in South Africa at the time.
5: Oh, do tell us.
12: Very well. You shall have the story. I suppose most of you have heard of Sir Lawrence Eardsley, the great South African mining magnate. His mines were gold mines, but he comes into the story through his son. You may remember that just before the war, rumors were afield of a new potential site the size of Kimberley. Two young explorers, so it was reported, had returned bringing with them a remarkable collection of rough diamonds, some of them of considerable size. Diamonds of small size had been found before in the neighborhood of the Essequibo and Mazaruni Rivers, but these two young men, John Eardsley and his friend Lucas claimed to have discovered beds of great carbon deposits at the common head of two streams. Diamonds were of every color, pink, blue, yellow, green, black, and the purest white. Eardsley and Lucas came to Kimberley, where they were to submit their gems to inspection. At the same time, a sensational robbery was found to have taken place at the Beers. In sending diamonds to England, they are made up into a packet. This remains in the big safe, of which two keys are held by two different men, whilst a third man knows the combination. They're handed to the bank, and the bank sends them to England. Each package is worth roughly about £100,000. On this occasion, the bank were struck by something a little unusual about the ceiling of the packet. It was opened and found to contain knobs of sugar. Exactly how suspicion came to fasten on John Eardsley, I do not know. It was remembered that he had been very wild at Cambridge and that his father had paid his debts more than once. Anyhow, it soon got about that this story of South American diamond fields was all fantasy. John Eardsley was arrested, and his possession was found a portion of the De Beer diamonds. The case never came to court. Sir Lawrence Eardsley paid over a sum equal to the missing diamonds, and De Beers did not prosecute. Exactly how the robbery was committed has never been known. But the knowledge that his son was a thief broke the old man's heart. He had a stroke shortly afterwards. As for John, his fate was in a way merciful. He enlisted, fought bravely, and was killed, thus wiping out the stain on his name. Sir Lawrence himself had a third stroke and died about a month ago. He died without a will, and his vast fortune passed to his next of kin,
0: a man whom he hardly knew. As soon as he finished his story, a babble of questions broke out. Out of the corner of my eye, I noticed something seemed to attract Miss Beddingfield's attention. And she turned in her chair. I heard her gasp, and I too turned. My new secretary, Rayburn, was standing in the doorway under his tan, His face had the pallor of one who has seen a ghost. Evidently, Race's story had moved him profoundly. Suddenly, conscious of our scrutiny, he turned abruptly and disappeared.
5: Do you know who that is?
0: That's my other secretary, Mr. Harry Rayburn. He's been lying low up to now.
5: Has he been your secretary long?
0: Well, uh... I engaged him just before I sailed. Old friend of mine recommended him. She lapsed into a thoughtful silence. I turned to Race with the feeling that it was my turn to display an interest in his story. Who is Sir Lawrence's next of kin, Race? Do you know? I should say so. I am.
4: It was the night of the fancy dress dance that I decided the time had come for me to confide in someone. So far, I had played a lone hand and rather enjoyed it. Now, suddenly, everything was changed. I distrusted my own judgment, and for the first time, a feeling of loneliness and desolation crept over me. I sat on the edge of my bunk, still in my fortune teller dress, and considered the situation. I thought first of Colonel Race. He had seemed to like me. He would be kind, I was sure. And he was no fool. He was a man of commanding personality. But he would likely take the whole matter out of my hands. Then I thought of Mrs. Blair. She too had been kind to me. I did not delude myself into the belief that that really meant anything. It was probably a mere whim of the moment. All the same, I had it in my power to interest her. She was a woman who had experienced most of the ordinary adventures of life. I proposed to supply her with an extraordinary one. And I liked her. I liked her ease of manner, her lack of sentimentality. My mind was made up. Then I remembered that I did not know the number of her cabin. I rang the bell. After some delay, a man knocked on my cabin door. He gave me the information I wanted. Mrs. Blair's cabin was number 71. He apologized for the delay in answering the bell, but explained that he had all the cabins to attend to. Oh, where's the stewardess tonight?
1: They all go off duty at 10 o'clock.
5: No, I mean the night stewardess.
1: No stewardess on at night, miss. But...
5: But a stewardess came the other night. About one o'clock.
1: You must have been dreaming, miss. There's no stewardess on duty after ten.
4: He withdrew, and I was left to digest this morsel of information. Who was the woman who had come to my cabin on the night of the 22nd? My face grew graver as I realized the cunning and audacity of my unknown antagonists. Then... Pulling myself together, I left my own cabin and sought that of Mrs. Blair. I knocked at the door.
5: Who's that? It's me, Anne Bedingfeld. Come
4: in! I entered. A good deal of scattered clothing lay about, and Mrs. Blair herself was draped in one of the loveliest kimonos I had ever seen. It was all orange and gold and black, and made my mouth water to look at it.
5: Mrs. Blair... I want to tell you the story of my life. That is, if it isn't too late and you won't be bored. Not a bit.
11: I always hate going to bed. And I should love to hear the story of your life. You're a most unusual creature, magic girl. Nobody else would think of bursting in on me at 1 a.m. to tell me the story of their life. Especially after snubbing my natural curiosity for weeks as you have done. I'm not accustomed to being snubbed. It's been quite a pleasing novelty. Sit down on the sofa and unburden your soul.
4: I told her the whole story. It took some time as I was conscientious over all the details. She gave a deep sigh when I had finished. But she did not say at all what I had expected her to say. Instead, she looked at me, laughed. Do you know, Anne,
11: you're a very unusual girl. Haven't you ever had doubts? 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 Starting off alone with practically no money? What will you do when you find yourself in a strange country with all your money gone?
5: It's no good bothering about that until it comes. I've got plenty of money still. The 25 pounds that Mrs. Fleming gave me is practically intact. And then I wanted cards yesterday. That's another 15 pounds. Why, I've got lots of money, 40 pounds. Lots of money, my God.
11: I couldn't do it, Anne. And I've plenty of luck in my own way. I couldn't start off with a few pounds in my pocket and no idea as to what I was doing and where I was going. But that's the fun of
5: it. It gives one such a splendid feeling of adventure.
11: Lucky, Anne. (laughs) There aren't many people in the world who feel as you do. Well, what do you think of it all, Mrs. Blair? I think it's the most thrilling thing I ever heard. Now, to begin with, you will stop calling me Miss Blair. Suzanne will be ever so much better. Is that agreed? I should love it. Good. Now, let's get down to business. You say that Sir Eustace's secretary, not that long-faced one, Pejette, the other one, was the man who was stabbed and came into your cabin for shelter? Yes, I'm certain. That gives us two links to Sir Eustace. The woman was murdered in his house, and it's his secretary who gets stabbed at the mystic hour of one o'clock. I don't suspect Sir Eustace himself, but it can't be all coincidence. There's a connection somewhere, even if he himself is unaware of it. Then there's the strange business of the stewardess. What was she like?
5: I hardly noticed her. I was so excited and strung up, and a stewardess seemed such an anti-climax. But yes, I did think her face was familiar. Of course, it would be if I'd seen her about the ship.
11: Her face seemed familiar to you. You sure she wasn't a man? She was very tall. Hardly Sir Eustace, I should think. Nor Mr. Paget. Wait! The Reverend Chinchester! I've always had suspicions of that Chinchester creature. And he tried to get Cabin seventeen. Yes, it all fits in so far. But what does it all mean? What was really meant to happen at one o'clock in cabin 17? It can't be the stabbing of the secretary. There would be no point in timing that for a special hour on a special day in a special place. No, it must have been some kind of appointment. And he was on his way to keep it when they knifed him. But who was the appointment with? Certainly not with you. It might have been with Chinchester. Or it might have been with Pagette.
5: That seems unlikely. They can see each other any time. Could there have been anything hidden in the cabin? That seems more probable. It would explain my things being ransacked the next morning. But there was nothing hidden there, I'm sure of it. Could it have been your precious piece of paper they were looking for? Might have been, but it seems rather senseless. It was only a time and a date, and they were both passed by then.
4: That's true.
11: Have you got it with you? I'd rather like to see it.
4: I had brought the paper with me as Exhibit A. I handed it over to her. There's a dot after the 17. Why isn't there a dot after the 1, too? There's a
11: space. Yes, there's a space, but... Anne, that isn't a dot! It's a flaw in the paper! A flaw in the paper, do you see? So you've got to ignore it and just go by the spaces. 1, 71, 22. You see, it's the same, but not quite. It's 1 o'clock still and 22nd, but it's cabin 71. My
5: cabin, Anne! But, Suzanne, nothing happened here at one o'clock on the 22nd. Oh, no, it didn't. This isn't your own cabin, is it, Suzanne? I mean, not the one you originally booked. No, the purser changed me into it. I wonder if it was booked before sailing for someone. Someone who didn't turn up. I suppose we could find out. The purser was telling me about it. The cabin
11: was booked in the name of Mrs. Gray. Mrs. Gray but it seems that Mrs. Gray was merely a pseudonym for the famous Madame Nadina. She's a celebrated Russian dancer, you know. She's never appeared in London, but Paris has been quite mad about her. She had a terrific success there all through the war. A thoroughly bad lot, I believe, but most attractive. The purser expressed his regrets that she wasn't on board in a most heartfelt fashion when he gave me her cabin. And then Colonel Race told me a lot about her. It seems there were very strange stories afloat in Paris. She was suspected of espionage, but they couldn't prove anything. I rather fancy Colonel Race was over there simply on that account. He's told me some very interesting things. There was a regular organized gang, not German in origin at all. In fact, the head of it, a man always referred to as the colonel, was thought to be an Englishman, but they never got any clue as to his identity. But there is no doubt that he controlled a considerable organization of international crooks, Robberies, espionages, assaults, he undertook them all and usually provided an innocent scapegoat to pay the penalty. Diabolically clever, he must have been. This woman was supposed to be one of his agents, but they couldn't get a hold of anything to go upon. And I do believe we're on the right track. Nadina is just the woman to be mixed up in this business. The appointment on the morning of the 22nd was with her in this cabin. She meant to sail.
5: Then why didn't she? Because she was dead. Suzanne, I think Nadina was the woman found murdered in Millhouse.
4: My mind went back to the bare room in the empty house and that indefinable sensation of menace and evil. With it came a memory, the falling pencil and the discovery of the roll of films. A roll of films. That struck a more recent note. Where had I heard of a roll of films? Suddenly, I flew at Suzanne and almost shook her in my excitement. Your films... The ones that were passed
5: to you through the vent, wasn't that on the 22nd? The ones I lost? Why would anyone return them to you that way in the middle of the night? It's a mad idea. No, they were a message. The films had been taken out of the yellow tin case and something else put inside. Have you got it still?
4: I may have used it. No, here it is. I remember I tossed it into the rack at the side of the bunk. She held it out to me. It was an ordinary round tin cylinder such as films are packed in for the tropics took it with trembling hand, but even as I did so, my heart leapt. It was noticeably heavier than it should have been. With shaking fingers, I peeled off the strip of adhesive plaster that kept it airtight. I pulled off the lid, and a stream of dull, glassy pebbles rolled onto the bed. Pebbles?
11: Pebbles? No, Anne, not pebbles. Diamonds! Diamonds?
5: Are you sure, Suzanne?
11: Oh, yes. I've seen rough diamonds too often to have any doubts. They're beauties, too, Anne, and some of them are unique, I should say. There's a
5: history behind these. The history we heard tonight. You mean Colonel Race's story. It can't be a coincidence. He told it for a purpose. To see its effect
4: on Sir Eustace? Yes. A doubt assailed me. Was it Sir Eustace who had been subjected to a test? Or had the story been told for my benefit? I remember the impression I had received on the previous night of having been deliberately pumped for information. For some reason or other, Colonel Race was suspicious. But where did he come in? What possible connection could he have with the affair? Who is Colonel Race? That's rather a
11: question. He's pretty well known as a big game hunter. And as you heard him say tonight, he was a distant cousin of Sir Lawrence Erdsley. I've never actually met him until this trip. He journeys to and from Africa a good deal. There's a general idea that he does secret service work. I don't know whether it's true or not. He's certainly a rather mysterious creature.
5: I suppose he came into a lot of money as Sir Lawrence Erdsley's heir. My dear Anne, he must be rolling. You know, he'd be a splendid match for you. I can't have a good go at him with you aboard the ship. You married women have a power over men I'll never understand. We do have a pull. Everybody knows that I'm absolutely devoted
11: to Clarence. It's so safe and pleasant to make love to a devoted husband. It must be
5: very nice for Clarence to be married to you. Well, I'm wearing to live with.
11: Still, he can always escape to the foreign office where he his eyeglasses on and goes to sleep in a big armchair. We might cable him to tell us all he knows about race. I love sending cables, and they annoy Clarence, so. He always says a letter or a call would have done as well. I don't suppose he'd tell us anything, though. He's so frightfully discreet. But let us go on with our matchmaking. I'm sure Colonel Race is very attracted to you, Anne. Give him a couple of glances from those wicked eyes of yours and the deed is done. Everyone gets engaged on board ship. There's nothing else to do. I don't want to get married.
5: Don't you? Why not? I love being married. What I want to know is, what has Colonel Race got to do with this? He's in it somewhere. You don't think it was a mere chance, his telling that story? No, I don't. He was watching us all narrowly. You remember, some of the diamonds were recovered, not all. Perhaps these are the missing ones, or perhaps... Perhaps what? I should like to know what became of the other young man. Not John Erdsley, but what was his name? Lucas. We're getting
11: some light on the thing anyway. It's the diamonds all these people are after. It must be why the man in the brown suit killed Nadina. He didn't kill her. Of course he killed her. Who else could have done so? I I don't know but I'm sure he didn't kill her. He went into that house three minutes
5: after her and came out as white as a sheet. Because he found her dead. What if? What if the murderer was in the house already? Or else he got in some other way. There'd be no need for him to pass the lodge and be seen at all. He could have climbed over the wall. Then who is the man in the brown suit? If he was the doctor in
11: the tube, he would have had time to remove his makeup and follow the woman, Nadina, to Marlowe. She and Mr. L.B. Carton were to have met there. They both had an order to view the same house, and if they took such elaborate precautions to make their meeting appear accidental, they must have suspected they were being followed. All the same, Mr. Carton did not know that his shadower was the man in the brown suit, because when he recognized him, the shock was so great that he lost his head completely and stepped back onto the line. Then he took the paper from the dead man, and in his hurry to get away, he dropped it. Then he followed the woman to Marlowe. What did he do when he left there? When he had killed her, or, according to you, found her dead? Where did he go? I wonder. Now, is it possible that he induced Sir Eustace Pedler to bring him on board as his secretary? It would be a unique chance to getting safely out of England, and dodging the hue and cry. But how did he square Sir Eustace? It looks as though he had some hold over him. Or over Paget. You don't seem to like Paget, Anne. Sir Eustace says he's a most capable and hard-working young man. And really, he may be, for all we know, against him. Well, if either of those speculations are correct, Rayburn is the man in the brown suit. He had read the paper he dropped, and, misled by the dot as you were, he attempted to reach Cabin 17 at what o'clock on the 22nd, having previously tried to get possession of the cabin through Paget. But on the way there, somebody knifes him. Chichester. Yes, it all fits in.
5: Cable to Lady Nasby that you have found the man in the brown suit. And your fortune's made, Anne. Rayburn isn't the man in the brown suit. He doesn't look anything like the man from the tube.
11: You lie very well, Anne. But Mr. Rayburn matches the man you described to me exactly. I have a feeling it will save you time and heartache if you tell me why you've
5: suddenly decided to try and lie to your friend. I'm not ashamed of it. You can't be ashamed of something that just happens to you. That's what he did. He was detestable, rude and ungrateful, but that I think I understand. It's it's like a dog that's been chained up or badly treated, it'll bite anybody. That's what he was like. Bitter and snarling. I don't know why I care, but I did. I do. I care horribly. Just seeing him tonight has turned my whole life upside down. I want him. I'd walk over Africa barefoot until I find him. I'd work for him, care for him, steal for him. I love him. There. Now
11: you know. You're very un-English, magic girl. I've never met anyone who was at once so practical and so passionate. I shall never care like that, mercifully for me. And yet, I envy you, Anne. It's something to be able to care. Most people can't. What a mercy for that little doctor man that you didn't marry him. He doesn't sound at all the sort of individual who would enjoy keeping high explosive in the house. So there's to be no cabling to Lady Nasby? No. But you believe him to be innocent?
5: Yes. I also believe that innocent people can be hanged despite their innocence. Hmm. True. But, and dear, face facts.
11: In spite of all you say, he may have murdered this woman. No, he didn't.
5: "'He could have killed her. "'He may have even followed her there "'with that idea in his mind, "'but he wouldn't take a bit of black cord "'and strangle her. "'If he had done it, "'he would have strangled her with his bare hands.'
4: "'I got an opportunity of tackling Colonel Race "'on the following morning "'as we walked up and down the deck together.
5: "'Isn't it lovely this morning? "'Now that the sea is behaving so nicely, "'I feel like I should stay on it forever and ever.'
4: "'We linked together over the rail.' It was a glassy calm. The sea looked as though it had been oiled. There were great patches of color on it. Blue, pale green, emerald, purple, and deep orange. Like a cubist picture. There was an occasional flash of silver that showed the flying fish. The air was moist and warm, almost sticky. It was like a gentle caress. That was a very
5: interesting story you told us last night. Which one? The one about the diamonds.
12: Women are always interested in diamonds.
5: What became of the other young man? You said there were two of them.
12: Indeed. Don Eardsley and Harry Lucas. They couldn't prosecute one without the other, and seeing as Sir Lawrence saved his son from standing trial, Mr. Lucas went scot-free too.
5: What happened to him? Eventually, I mean.
12: He went to war. He was reported missing and wounded, believed killed.
4: That told me what I wanted to know. I asked no more more than ever I wondered how much Colonel Race knew. The part he was playing in all this puzzled me. After he departed, I went to interview the night steward. The little financial encouragement I soon got him to talk. On the voyage from Cape Town to England, one of the passengers had handed him a roll of film with instructions that they were to be dropped onto the bunk in cabin 71 at 1 a.m. on January 22nd on the outward journey. A lady would be occupying the cabin and the affair was described as a bet. I gather that the steward had been liberally paid for his part in the transaction. The lady's name had not been mentioned. Of course, as Mrs. Blair went straight into cabin 71, asking the purser as soon as she got on board, never occurred to the steward that she was not the lady in question. The name of the passenger who had arranged the transaction was L.B. Carton, and his description tallied exactly with that of the man killed on the tube. So one mystery, at all events, was cleared up. And the diamonds were obviously the key to the whole situation. Those last days on Kilmorton seemed to pass very quickly. As we drew nearer and nearer to Cape Town, I was forced to consider my plans. There were so many people I wanted to keep an eye on. Mr. Chichester, Sir Eustace, and his secretary, and yes, Colonel Race. Naturally, it was Chichester who had first claim on my attention. Indeed... I was on the point of dismissing Sir Eustace and Mr. Paget from their position of suspicious characters when a chance conversation awakened fresh doubts in my mind. I had not forgotten Mr. Paget's incomprehensible emotion at the mention of Florence. On the last evening on board, we were all sitting on deck, and Sir Eustace addressed a perfectly innocent question to his secretary. I forget what it was something to do with railway delays in Italy. But at once I noticed that Mr. Paget was displaying the same uneasiness which had caught my attention before. When Sir Eustace asked Mrs. Blair for a dance, I quickly moved into the chair next to the secretary. I was determined to get to the bottom of the matter.
5: I have always longed to go to Italy,
4: and especially Florence. Did you enjoy it very much there? Indeed I did. Uh, If you will excuse me, there is some... I took hold of him firmly by his coat sleeve. Oh,
5: you mustn't run away! I'm sure Sir Eustace wouldn't like you to leave me alone with no one to talk to. You never seem to want to talk about Florence. Oh, Mr. Paget, I believe you have a guilty secret.
10: Not at all, Miss Bedingfield, not at all. I should only be too delighted to tell you all about it, but there really are some cables.
5: Oh, Mr. Paget, what a thin pretense. I shall have to tell Sir Eustace how you left me here with no one to talk to. Uh,
10: what is it you want to know?
5: Oh, everything. The pictures, the olive trees. I suppose you speak Italian?
10: Not a word, unfortunately. But of course, with hall porters and, uh, uh, guides.
5: Dear old Florence, so picturesque on the banks of the Arno. A beautiful river, and the Duomo. Do you, you remember the Duomo? Of course, of course. Another beautiful river, is it not?
4: Almost more beautiful than the Arno. Decidedly so, I should say. He had sprung the trap I'd set. Mr. Paget delivered himself into my hands with every word he uttered. The man had never been in Florence in his life. But if not in Florence, where had he been? In England? Actually, in England at the time of the Millhouse mystery? I decided on a bold step. The curious thing is, I fancied I had seen you before somewhere.
5: But I must be mistaken, since you were in Florence at the time, and yet... Where? Marlowe. You know Marlowe. Why, of course. How stupid of me. Sir Eustace has a house there.
4: And with an incoherent muttered excuse, my victim rose and fled. That night, I burst into Suzanne's cabin, alight with excitement. He was in England, in Marlowe, at the time of the murder. Up till now, we've considered Pajat as having an alibi.
11: Now we know he hasn't. Exactly. We must keep an eye on him. As well as everybody else. That's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. That and finance. I know you are absurdly proud and independent, but you've got to listen to sense over this. We're partners. I wouldn't offer you a penny because I liked you or because you're a friendless girl. What I want is a thrill and I'm prepared to pay for it. We're going into this together regardless of expense. To begin with, you'll come with me to the Mount Nelson Hotel at my expense and we'll plan out our campaign. But I will not hear it, Anne. It's settled. Now then, let us discuss our victims. Mr. Chinchester is going on to Durban. Sir Eustace is going to the Mount Nelson Hotel in Cape Town and then up to Rhodesia. He's going to have a private car on the railway, and in a moment of expansion, after his fourth glass of champagne the other night, he offered me a place in it. I dare say he didn't really
5: mean it. But all the same, he can't very well back out if I hold him to it. Good, you keep an eye on Sir Eustace and Paget, and I take on Chichester. What about Colonel Race?
4: Colonel Race is going to Rhodesia too. If we could arrange for Sir Eustace to invite him also... We parted on the understanding that Suzanne should employ her considerable talents to the best advantage. I felt too excited to go to bed. It was my last night on board. Early tomorrow morning, we should be in Table Bay. I slipped up on deck. The breeze was fresh and cool. The boat was rolling lightly in the sea. The decks were dark and deserted. I leaned over the rail, watching the phosphorescent trail of foam Ahead of us lay Africa. We were rushing towards it through the dark water. I felt alone in a wonderful world. Suddenly, I had a curious premonition of danger. I had heard nothing, but I swung round instinctively. A shadow form had crept up behind me. It sprang. One hand gripped my throat, stifling any cry. I fought desperately, but I had no chance. I was half choking from the grip on my throat, but I bit and clung and scratched as hard as I could. If he had succeeded in reaching me unawares, it would have been easy enough for him to sling me overboard with a sudden heave. The sharks would have taken care of the rest. Struggle as I would, I felt myself weakening. My assailant felt it too. Everything started to go black. And then, running on swift, noiseless feet, another shadow joined in. With one blow of his fist, he sent my opponent crashing to the deck. Released. I fell back against the rail, sick and trembling. My rescuer turned to me with a quick movement. You're hurt. That one moment in which his attention had been diverted to me had been enough for the fallen enemy. Quick as a flash, he had risen to his feet and taken to his heels down the deck. With an oath, Rayburn sprang after him. I joined the chase. Round the deck, we went to the starboard side of the ship. There, by the dining cabin door, lay the man in a crumpled heap. Mr. Rayburn was bending over him. Did you hit him again?
7: There was no need. I found him collapsed by the door, or else he couldn't get it open in his shamming. We'll soon see about that, and we'll see who he is, too.
4: Rayburn struck a match. We both swore the man was Guy Paget. Rayburn appeared absolutely stupefied by the discovery.
5: You seem surprised. You're not? How much do you know? A good deal, Mr. Lucas. He
4: seized my arm. The unconscious strength of his grip made me wince. Where did you
7: get that name?
4: Or do you prefer to be called the man in the brown suit?
7: Are you a girl or a witch?
5: I'm a friend. I offered you my help once. I offer it again.
7: No.
4: Perhaps you don't realize how much in my power you are. A word from me to the captain. Lightning, quick. I felt him release my arm and his hands clasped round my throat as he pushed me backwards against the railing.
7: Say it. And whilst we're realizing things, do you realize that you're in my power this minute? I could take you by the throat like this and squeeze the life out of you. And then, like your unconscious friend had planned to do, fling you to the sharks. What do you say to that?
4: (laughs) Just at that moment, I knew that I loved the danger. Loved the feeling of his hands on my throat. That I would not have exchanged that moment for any other moments in my life he smiled clearly taken off guard by the sound and then with a short laugh of his own he released me
7: what's your name ann benningfeld does nothing frighten you ann benningfeld
5: oh yes wasps sarcastic women very young men cockroaches and snobby
4: shop assistants he laughed again and softly kicked at the unconscious form of paget at his feet
7: what shall we do with this junk
4: throw him overboard
7: I admire your instincts, Miss Benningfield. But we'll leave him to recover at his leisure. He's not seriously hurt.
5: You shrink from a second murder, I see.
7: A second murder?
5: The woman at Marlow.
7: Sometimes I believe I might have killed her if I had the chance.
5: Well, we seem to have said all there is to be said. Except good night.
7: Good night. And goodbye, Miss Benningfield.
5: Till we meet again, Mr. Lucas.
7: Why do you say that?
5: Because I have a fancy that we shall meet again.
7: Not if I can help it.
5: All the same, I think we shall.
7: I wish to never see you again.
4: It was really a very rude thing to say, but I only laughed softly and slipped away into the darkness, hugging myself with secret satisfaction.
2: This has been The Man in the Brown Suit, Part 1. The story continues in Part 2.